Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May the 22nd, 2013. This is episode 1580 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Your time uh, for your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. That is the think line. If you call into that number, you'll get a voice message. Please leave me a message and uh, try to keep it under about two minutes. Ask your question or make your point up front. And uh, once you get that done, uh, go ahead and uh, and hang up the phone, and it will come to me in a magical email. And it'll come to me for my screening, and I will try to get your call on the air the coming Friday. Uh, not all the calls get on the air, but right now I'd say, especially since we changed up the expert panel format, at least half are. Uh, some of you guys call like four or five calls in in one week. I usually pick the first one that I get to that I like. Uh, the rest stay in the bank, but I may or may not end up going back to them depending on call volume. So it's usually better to call one call in a week for the best chance to get your calls on the air, though I know sometimes like I'm going to get these all done. I understand that, but I'm just giving you a little bit of a, a tip there on that one. Remember, we have changed up how we do the expert panel calls and or, uh, questions. I now want them to come in an email to me. I want them brief, concise, and to the point, and then any uh, details you think you need after that. And uh, you'll see how those work today if you've never heard the expert panel on a Friday show before. I will let you know, again, I'm working this program right now uh, to kind of shake things out and make sure I've got you know committed participation from all the council members. Going to be here pretty much every week with a week off here and there. Uh, building the council up a little bit, adding some more people to it. You'll hear two new people, one returning per actually two returners, and one brand new person today. Um, but I'm going to build this council up till there's probably 20 members on it. Uh, that means there'll probably be 10 to 15 at least minimum responses a week. And what that means is this show will bifurcate. And we'll end up with an expert show once a week and a call-in show once a week and a Just Jack show. And we'll end up with an interview or two and a feedback show. It'll be awesome. Uh, but before I commit to making the expert panel thing a standalone show, we've got some uh, some team building to do and some cuts to make to those that... Maybe don't get the answer back as often as they should. Uh, all said and good fun, but the re reality is I sent out an email today saying I don't want anybody needing butt hurt cream if you get cut from the, the lineup, so to speak. So anyway, just so you guys know where that's going. And uh, there'll be a page coming once we have that done with a list of all the expert panel members and their bios and a link to the page. Again, until we have that final team chosen, we're going to hold off on that. Anyway, before I get to your calls and the questions for the expert panel... Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. 
Uh, you pick up some handle material, some bolsters and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let me remind you that there's a way you can help support this show if you like it and you want to make sure it's around forever. Consider joining the MSB at 18.3 cents an episode. You can support the work that I do, and you can get enough discounts on all kinds of really cool stuff to more than pay for your membership every year and actually end up profitable with it. I've built the MSB into what I call a win-win-win scenario. The audience gets to support the show and be part of something larger, but they also get to make a profit on their investment. That's what I see MSB as. If you're buying stuff, from the practical to the tactical to the guns to gardens and everything in between, you are going to get a return of investment on your MSB membership. The vendors get business they would never you know, otherwise uh, have, and that is what we call incremental revenue, and a business lives and dies on incremental revenue additions. So the businesses get more business than they would have otherwise, and I get to do what I love, which is help educate and inspire you guys in the ways of modern survivalism uh, and, and modern living in, in ways that are, you know, are designed to help you guys live the best life you can if times get tough or even if they don't. So that's how I built the whole system, and uh, if you want to participate in it, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Or if you're military law enforcement or Peace Corps or active duty prior service, any of those things, or a first responder like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, just email me with uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences before you join, and I'll get you a discount code back to thank you for your service to our nation, either at home or abroad. Um, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 
is 1580. I believe that's the year anyway. It is, yes, because the episode is 1580. And uh, today we have from the awesome Alex Shrug at tspwiki.com, Too Much Silver Limits Spending in the Ottoman Empire, When Fighting for Your Rights Goes Wrong, In 60 Years in a Fog, Portugal is Annexed by Spain. I'm going to read the last one. The young King Sebastian, the first of Portugal, has disappeared. It is believed he has been killed in battle, but without a body, the rumors persist that he's simply lost. and will one day reappear out of the fog. Really, I'm not kidding. He has no heir, so there is a fight for the throne. There are even people who come forward claiming to be King Sebastian himself. Finally, the King of Spain, Philip II, takes the throne for himself and joins the crowd of Portugal and Spain. It is a more or less peaceful annexation. His claim to the throne is reasonable, as reasonable as any other claimant, and he is the big dog in the hunt. Portugal will remain as a separate state within Spain, but for the next 60 years they will be in decline. My takes by Alex Shrugged. During his reign, King Sebastian had set up communal uh, granaries for the poor. These granaries provided loans and seeds so the poor could grow their own food. Imagine that, helping yourself out of poverty by the sweat of your own brow. The poor were expected to pay the loans back once they were productive again. It seems to me there are two kinds of poor, those who are disabled due to illness or injury, and those able-bodied poor due to circumstances or plain laziness need a jump start or a swift kick in the backside to get going again. In the Bible, the poor came to the fields and walked behind the harvesters, picking up whatever they dropped or missed. The charity of the Bible required some work. Yeah, I agree with that. If you if you go into the Bible and read about that, it also says to the landowners and the harvesters that you're not supposed to try to get every little bit. You're supposed to just harvest and let some of it fall and leave it. So not only did the poor come to get it, but you know the, the edict was basically make sure there's something for them to get. Now, this idea of a granary that provides loans in the form of seed and then accepts repayment of those loans later, I would imagine also would take the loan back in seed, so there's more seed to loan out to the next one. And this is a much better scenario for someone that's impoverished than a monetary loan. Because the price of grain and therefore seed, because seed and grain are the same thing, could fluctuate. But the grain itself is a pretty fixed thing. And if you plant a pound, you're going to get more than a pound unless you have a complete failure. And therefore, it would seem that this process would be something that regardless of the overall market influences, at least from a standpoint of being able to produce your own grain again next year, that a poor person could easily work their way out of the loan in a single season as long as they had a decent year. Because if you needed, let's say, 100 pounds of seed to plant whatever field you had available to plant, and then you had to pay back 100 pounds of grain, and you'd need 100 pounds of seed next year, well, you withdraw 200 pounds from your production, you take whatever you need to eat, you sell the surplus, you repay your loan, maybe with a pound of interest, I don't know, and uh, then you go on and replant your own seed. And if you're smart, you reserve more than you need for seed, and that way if you have failures, you can receive I wonder if we could do something like that on a larger scale today with not just seed but even plants. What if there was a way that we could set up a situation for people that wanted to establish large-scale forest-based systems, civopasture systems, where you could get a 100 trees, but then you were responsible for grafting, propagating in some way, 105 trees over the next two to three years and repaying them back into the system. 
such systems if they're not to be run with government coercion, in other words, theft, and we'll have an interesting question about that in a bit, um, would require that the people with more resources prime the pump voluntarily. So it could be done, but it takes enough faith in the people that you're going to help for the people that have the means to help to be willing to make the commitment to get things started. It's an interesting thought, but I certainly think it could be done. Anyway, especially with as cheaply as plants can be propagated once the knowledge is there. So anyway, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main part of the show. I do want to remind you real quick, for those of you that are uh, fond of my Duck Chronicles series, um, that we do have duck t-shirts available in the gear shop telling the system to uh, duck off, basically. But it, what it actually says is duck the system. It's a triple entendre. You can go to the third one, which can be a little adult if you want to, but really it is a family-friendly logo, and uh, it's pretty cool. And they are available in both green and brown. Uh, I think the, those of you that are fans of the Oregon Ducks might really like the green ones, and I think the brown ones just look a little better in my personal taste. Uh, I've got a pile of them on the way to me, so check them out. There'll be a link in the uh, show notes today. Tell the system to duck off. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first call uh, for today's show. Hi, Jack. This is Donna from Texas. Our ducks are finally laying. Do I need to feed the eggshells back to them to supplement calcium for good egg production? How do you do that? By the way, you mentioned recently that drakes don't have that protective attitude like roosters do. We had a neighborhood drake wander in, and when he tried to molest one of the girls, three of my drakes turned into warriors, and they drove him off. Love the show. Uh, with the feeding back of the eggshells, all I can say is that we don't, and we have our girls, once they're old enough to lay on, basically a layer ration. So they get you know, some supplemental calcium for that. I also, my property uh, being so based in caliche, the vegetation and the grit that's around that they would use is so full of calcium as well that it's not really a big concern for us. Um, I've talked to plenty of people that manage and run ducks in my research toward making my operation more efficient. I've never met anybody that does that. I can tell you they're not like chickens with their response to being offered, at least not in my uh, experience. If you have um, like an egg that goes bad or gets broke and you give it to the dogs, the dogs will clean it out and the ducks walk right over it. They never even think about eating it as a half an eggshell sitting there. Um, if you were going to do it, the way I would recommend it is to just to let the eggshells dry, drop them into a blender or something like that, and, and, and make them into more of a grit or a powder and mix it with their feet. And, and they would probably eat it then. But then, see, here's the problem. What you're doing when you do that is you're deciding, I know that my ducks require more calcium than they're getting, and you're forcing it into their diet. Where if you put it out as a free choice supplement – and they don't take it, what they're telling you is we don't need that. They, you know, Animals do have a certain intrinsic intelligence, and when they're deficient in something and it's available, they'll acquire it. Um, in most instances, and specifically poultry and, and most of our ruminant livestock seem to be pretty good when offered free choice. So if anything, that would be the approach I would take. Someplace where it's dry, where it's sheltered, so it's not going to turn into a, a calcium brick. Um Dry some shells, put them out, and see if they see if they choose to use it. If they don't choose to use it, what they're saying is we don't need it. We don't need it, and they can have too much. Um, also, if you're putting it into their feed and they don't want it, 
Uh, it will increase the amount of feed that they throw out. Uh, we all deal with this as poultry owners, those of us that are uh, birds sorting through and just discarding some, and ducks can be kind of messy with it, and it's wasted feed, and it's it's not what you're looking for out of the efficiency of running your flock. So I would try a free choice to see if they even bother. I wouldn't worry about it very much. Um, if you start getting weak eggs, then I would worry about it. But my God, my eggs are like, I wouldn't want to get hit with one if somebody threw it. I'd much rather be hit with a chicken egg than a duck egg. And those of you that have had duck eggs know what I mean about the thickness of the shells. So keep an eye on the, sh the shell structure and what have you. But if they're producing good eggs, I won't worry about it. Um, they're pretty efficient at utilizing and extracting uh, calcium. In fact, one of the great things about things like chickens and ducks and other fowl that lay eggs is you can put them into systems that are very low in calcium, and yet they'll still produce rich calcium in the form of eggshells. So I would look at that more as an opportunity for soil amendments. And if you're then feeding them the, pr the product of that soil amendment, you're feeding them calcium that's been brought up into plant matter, and that's far more efficient for them anyway. Uh, that's just my thoughts on that. As far as your drakes being protective, I don't want to poo-poo this, but um, when a, a, a jealous boyfriend gets aggressive because a girl's approached by Uh, another man, that's not necessarily being totally protective. It's protecting property in one instance, and it's not very good human behavior. It's, I guess, in this situation, valuable duck behavior. And we certainly have seen on our property that some of the ducks seem to have favored certain drakes. And while you do get overbreeding at some point, and I'm going to have to call some drakes, There's a point where it gets to be too much, and the, the, the favored drakes to that particular duck tend to go in and, and knock it apart. And I guess that happens. But that's more of a possessive breeding behavior. When I talk about protection from ducks, I'm talking about when we had upgraded the rooster here, if there was a hawk visible, that bird sounded off, and all those birds ran in. Um, if he found a, to a choice marcel, he would stand on it and make a noise, and the, one of the girls would come over, and he would give it up to them. That type of behavior that you see out of roosters. Um, we had a fox, a young fox, get over the fence one time. I've only seen a fox here. And that bird took off after it, spurred the shit out of it, and scared it over the fence. And I, I've never seen a rooster attack anything like that size in my life. And I think that fox could have killed the rooster, but I think the fox was like, holy crap, I don't know what to do. It's like a big dog chased by a chihuahua. They don't they don't know. Or that video we've all seen of the cat that chases the pit bull off. That pit bull could have chomped that cat, but it just, it, the wiring was, uh, and I've just never seen drakes do any of that stuff that roosters do. So they have some value to a flock. They just don't have, in my experience anyway, the value that uh, a rooster does to chickens. Uh, let's take a question for expert council member uh, Brian Black from ITS Tactical. I, I usually have tactical questions for Brian about carry and, and weapons and uh, tactical skills, but I have a totally different question I thought the audience might enjoy for Brian today uh, because there's a lot of people in this audience trying to build successful businesses. And, Brian's a guy that started like one year right after TSP was right when Brian started. He got his business together, and that's how we met. After he started, he was out doing some uh, competitive research, ran into TSP, and said, this isn't really a competitor, but he's doing something very similar in a different way, and reached out to me and said, hey, can we you know, have a beer and talk? And we did, and we became very good friends, and I've followed his progress. And it's it's interesting to see the progression because – 
Uh, not only did he start his business one year after mine, but my wife quit her job in January, two years after I, w I was in this business full time. And exactly one year later, Brian's wife quit her job and went to work in, in, in ITS Tactical. And it, so it actually shows this like consistent progress of a business when run by certain business rules. Even though we run our businesses very differently, Brian's business is, is textual based. Uh, with video support. My video is audio-based with video support. Uh, Brian is far more appealing to specific niches in the law enforcement, military, etc., though we share that niche. I'm a little bit different, a little bit more broad. Brian's all about the tactical. I'm teaching how to grow a, a tree more often than I am about ballistics. So they're different worlds, but they're run, and, and Brian's like very meticulous about details, and I don't care. But yet the business has progressed very, very similarly and then became two different mature things. Brian's very product-based. I'm more of a membership-based thing, even though Brian has a membership product. He does a lot of revenue in uh, uh, product versus service, and I do almost all my revenue in service. It's, it's, so it's different, but yet the progression is the same. And when I look at that, I think that means we're both following successful models, but from different ideologies. And so my question for Brian this week was, now that you've gotten past that sustainable number, five years, because Brian's in his sixth year now, um, you know, and that means your business is going to make it unless you, you blow it when you make it five years. What was the primary factor driving you forward to success in the early years, especially when you were making almost no or making no money in the early years, that allowed you to turn ITS into the success that it is? Uh, Brian, what say you on that? Hey, Jack, it's Brian with ITS. I just wanted to answer your feedback question for today. So your question was, as a successful business and somebody that's uh, kind of got past the five-year sustainable mark in the business, what was the biggest factor in making ITS a success in the first year? And you were working very hard and not making much income. Um, and then there's a second question, which I'll address in a second. But so the as far as not making much income, that's exactly right. I didn't actually take a paycheck until about two and a half years into my business. So that's something that um, hopefully most people would be able to do if they were starting something for themselves. It's a, it's a big commitment. Um, I'd say what what is what really prompts that and what keeps you going is doing something you're passionate about. Um, and that's my biggest recommendation for anyone starting a business. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, um, you won't have the wherewithal to stick through it and to, to keep pushing ahead even though you're not seeing what you think you should be seeing in terms of gains and, and popularity and things like that, too. So um, your second question is, uh, what advice would you give to others who want to build a company of their own? Um, more importantly, that same thing. I think that uh, doing something you're passionate about is is the, the number one underlying aspect of starting any business. Um, if, you're, if you're going into it with the intention of making money, or to make a profit or to, you know, obviously at the end of the day, everyone wants to be successful in business and make a profit. I think any entrepreneur would be lying to you if they didn't say that. But when you're starting something, it needs to be all about your passion and your energy that goes into creating what you're, which, what you're bringing to the market, what's different. Um, and that's, that's what I'd say is probably the most important too. So thanks for having me on the show and appreciate your time. Thanks to everyone at TSP. This is Chris from San Jose, California, with a question about toxic fish. Here in the Bay Area, there are lots of streams, reservoirs, and even the ocean nearby, but I wouldn't eat the fish unless I had to. I'm hesitant to even use them in my garden or my compost. 
Jeff Lawton would probably think I'm just being a wuss, and Paul Wheaton would probably tell me to burn them, put them in the in the landfill, and then run away. What would Jack do? What is the most common answer uh, that any permaculturist gives to a question? Dun dun dun. It depends, and it, it does depend. Um, as far as the fish out of the 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 Bay Area of San Francisco out of the ocean. I would tell you that I think that fish is probably as safe to eat as just about anything you're going to buy in a store anywhere at any time, any place. Oceans have a dramatic ability to do a lot of, of cleansing and purifying. Yes, I have some concerns about radiation, specifically in the Pacific due uh, to Fukushima, but I think that's largely overblown, especially if you're talking about fish you're harvesting yourself from the shores uh, or, or near shores of the Bay Area. There are some fish that migrate far distances, but most of your shore fish are not fish that migrate across open ocean. If they do anything, they migrate up and down coasts. So I think that you're probably as safe eating that fish as you're breathing the air that you're breathing every day anyway. Um, you get into reservoirs and streams. I think you need to look at the actual uh, data uh, and warnings and testing for those bodies of water. For instance, we have a lake not far from me called Eagle Mountain Lake. It's a beautiful lake. It has crystal clear water. Uh, it's full of uh, fish, uh, from catfish to crappie to bass and all kinds of great stuff. And I would eat the fish out of that lake like nobody's business, and I wouldn't worry about it. And Now, there's, there's toxins everywhere, and if we eat too much of any one thing, we can concentrate toxic buildup from that particular source, and we don't give our bodies time to deal with those toxins and get rid of it. Uh, we hear a lot about detoxing, and I'm not saying there's not anything to it, especially if you eat a lot of toxic things all the time or have been and need to kind of clean your body out, a reboot. Um, but in general, the way you detox is you have a thing called a liver and you have things called kidneys. And if you didn't have those two things doing the detoxification of all the toxic stuff you eat every day, you'd be dead. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna over worry about that. But my point with the, it depends is, okay, now just downstream through the Trinity River is another lake near me called Lake Worth. Lake Worth specifically has a do not eat advisory due to PCBs in the lake that no one can quite figure out how it got in there. That means that they know how it got in there and they don't want to admit it, but I'm not eating fish out of water with known PCB contamination. Uh, even though these two, these two lakes share a common river, one's upstream from the other and one is not affected by this. Well, they wouldn't tell you. Well, they're the ones that told me that Lake Worth was, you know, not safe to, to, to consume the fish out of. And it's a shame because it's a bigger lake. It's a beautiful lake. It's full of fish. It's full of wildlife and bird life. And it may be that someday we come up with a re remediation methodology for this, but I'm not going to do that. You go like where I used to live in Pennsylvania. Some of the streams, there's you can eat all the trout you want out of it. And it's some of the best water in the world. Some of the streams, it looks really clean. But because of, of mining in the area, there's, there's a, a, you know, if there's sulfur, you're going to know. And that's not as huge a concern for the fish quality because it's going to oxidize. You're going to have orange water and things like that. And you look at that creek and go, oh, I don't know if I'd, I, I'd eat that. Well, trout are living in it. And the only problem there is sulfur. Eh, so what? You'll be fine. However, usually if there's sulfur and there's coal mining, there's also mercury. Not so good. So there's streams that look really clean that have mercury advisories, 
and there's streams that, that don't look that great in Pennsylvania that don't. So I think you've got to look at that individually. As for what Paul Wheaton would say, I love Paul. Um, he's now officially a member of the Expert Council once again. Um, we're going to hear from him today on what they're doing up there. I think he's doing great work. Uh, but I think he's nuts. I think he's crazy. And I think that our relationship's better because I've accepted that my friend Paul is nuts. Um, when he told me he was offended that people shake apple trees at cider festivals, I went, great, now I know. Now I know you're crazy. So, um, And then you're right about Jeff. I think Jeff might say, you know, just... With, I, I don't know. I think Jeff would use the same cautions I do, honestly. That you have to look at, well, what's there? But I think Jeff would be a lot less concerned if there was um, cattle grazing in an area, there was runoff for manure, and the fish were in water where there was a manure runoff. I mean, there's fish that are, are farmed on that type of system that you and I might go, I don't know, but generally people have lived long, healthy lives. If you look at the amount of fish consumed uh, in in very resilient systems in Asia, but how much things like duck manure are in those systems, it's huge. The people who eat the fish, live to be 100 years old, don't have any of the diseases that we do. There's a reason. Um, so it's more to me I'm worried about things like PCBs and mercury than I am about overall water quote-unquote quality. That's, that's my biggest concern, unless there's you know, raw garbage being dumped in the water actively. And I have to say, California, I know there's a pipeline thing right now, and they'll fix it. They will. It's easier to fix pipelines than drills under the water. Just saying. Anyway, um, the, uh, the they're, they've gotten really good. I mean, it's one of the things government's done effectively is after creating monopolies that allowed industry to just wholly destroy the groundwater, they, they've realized that you know the wind is blowing the other way, like we talked about with Michael Bolden yesterday, and they've done a great deal to help clean up groundwater and make it better than it was. There are streams that I grew up as a boy in Pennsylvania listening to my grandfather tell me that they caught trout out of when he was a child. And I didn't even believe the old man when I was a kid because you looked at that water and went, there's no way. I mean, you, you go over a waterfall, you stand there, and the stink of the sulfur coming out of it would just uh, it smell like sulfur mixed with sewage, which in some ways is what it was. And you know what? When I got out of the Army and went home, many of those streams, one of my biggest regrets that my grandfather never lived to see them come back to what they were. They're full of brook trout now. So there's progress that's been made there. And you breathe about 50,000 toxins every time you inhale and exhale. I think we should eat the cleanest, best food we can get. But I don't think you're going to find much less toxicity in an organic carrot from Baja, California, than you would from uh, an eelfish caught in the rocks in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay, honestly. Let's take another uh, call. Actually, let's take another one. No, let's go ahead and take another call. I got an interesting uh, call for you guys here. You guys have been waiting to hear from this guy again. Uh, here you go. Jack John, West Virginia. Question about flashlights. I have a flashlight fetish, and it's really hard to believe. But I said, I'm thinking about a new D-cell flashlight. Should I go with a regular bulb, or should I go LED? I know the LED's brighter. I just don't know if uh, it's worth the extra money or not. All right. Appreciate it, man. So I have a definite opinion about this, and the answer is pretty much yes, it's, it's worth the extra cost. Um, when you're comparing not a cheap one versus a quality other, but good what I call common man, middle-of-the-road quality um, uh, across the board, it, it generally will cost you almost twice as much. 
uh, a good quality mag instruments uh three d cell flashlight it costs you about twenty ish bucks and a a good l e d version will cost you forty ish bucks and why well there's a whole bunch of equipment out there manufacturing old style ones and they've come up to the new ones and they've had to make revisions and uh when mag first came out with their led uh flashlights especially the d cell models i was not impressed uh what i found the first time i i messed around with one is that they had not set the light up in a way that seemed like they'd accounted for the heat generation and you turn it on it was bright as all day and then it would fade and fade and fade and fade and fade and just get a little dimmer and a little dimmer and a little dimmer and you'd think well is this thing eating batteries or what cuz it's led and you'd shut it off and you wait a little while you turn it back on it was back up to bright but it wasn't like when it's going haywire where if you've had lights that start to dim and you smack them and they come back up um with their newer models they seem to have gotten over that hurdle um So there's some cheap LED mag lights out there that are about 20 bucks with 3D cells. And I don't recommend them because they have that problem. The light that I recommend if you want to step into LEDs with D cells and I think that we should all have one or two or three or four D cell flashlights sitting around whether they're LED or not. Uh, as Stephen Harris teaches, the D-cell is the most reliable long-term storage battery that you can get your hands on for for light. And for many other things, but definitely for lighting. Uh, ten years and they'll still work. They should be Duracell. And if you don't have Duracell, you should buy Duracell. And if you don't find Duracell, you should buy Duracell. And if you don't have Duracells, go find Duracells. Um, I, I've had good luck with Energizer as well, but I trust Steve on the best buy for the money being Duracell. And uh, I don't think it's marketing hype because, you know, Steve is just happy if you bought Energizer from his uh, his Amazon affiliate link is if you bought Duracell money-wise. But... Uh, ethically wise, he's telling you Duracell, and and I've had the least amount of problems, not only with loss of energy with Duracells, but with the, you know putting a thing away for a long time and open up and find corrosion on the battery. And I think that's maybe even more important here. So, D cells, Duracells, Maglite, and the newer model, and the model that I recommend, and I've just actually with this question uh, was was prompted enough by it to go ahead and buy me another one of these lights because I think it's a really valuable thing. It's a Mag Instrument ML300L. That would be the without spending a hundred bucks on a light or close to it, the light that I would recommend. The MSRP is actually like seventy or eighty bucks on this light, but the street price, which is what we actually care about, on Amazon with Prime and free shipping, uh, is forty two thirty seven. Um, and Amazon lists their list price as forty eight bucks. But if you go to the Mag Instruments website, you'll see that it's higher. So that must be. Uh, uh, Amazon's normal everyday list, and they might have it on sale or something right now, $42.37. Um, and I'll tell you why I recommend you go with a three cell. Because it's the same reason that you know, some of the old gunfighters from the old West said when they said, why do you recommend a 45? And they said, because they don't have a 46. Um, if they made this light in this price range with four D cells, it's what I would buy. And it's not just about energy reserves either. Um, it's about the use of this light, and I'll tell you my thoughts on that in, in just a second. But uh, I would go with four if they made it with LED. You can get it in incandescent with four, but I've not found a mag instruments, high-quality light with LED with four cells. And I think part of it is that with the LED technology and the efficiency, you don't really need them. I want this to be a big light for a variety of reasons. 
a big variety of reasons. One, this is a light that if something's going on and everything's dark, it's the first thing I'm going to grab to get things set up with. Which means while I'm doing that, I might set it down somewhere. The bigger it is, the easier it is to find when I've set it down. And if I misplace it, the easier it is for me to find it because it's big and it's honking and whatever. This is the light that I'm going to grab if I go outside because I hear a bump in the night. And if somebody comes at me or something comes at me and I don't want to shoot it, I'm going to club it. And I'd rather club it with four cells than three, but three than, than two. Uh, this, this, this tool doubles as a blunt impact uh, instrument. And trust me, it works. It works very, very well for that purpose. Um, and then there is the additional life expectancy or the additional energy reserves. Uh, this light has a lot of features. It's highly focusable. Uh, you can you can run it at different levels of intensity. Run at high, you're looking at 16 hours of light from fresh batteries. That's a lot of light for this level of light. Low, if you run on the low eco, uh, lows of 77 hours of, of run time, and eco is 117 hours. And the eco on this light will light up a room good enough to figure out what the hell's going on and get other stuff running. This is, to me, personally, the best recommendation I can give you in D-cell battery lights with LED for the money. I'm not saying there's not any other lights that are D-cell lights with LEDs that aren't a better light if we evaluate every single thing about them. I'm saying for under 50 bucks... This is the light that I personally rely on. And while I didn't kick this, uh, this, this question to Stephen Harris, I have a feeling he'd pick the same light. Uh, with, you know, without getting real expensive, he'd pick the same light. And if nothing else, he'd say, that's a damn solid investment. Uh, so, uh, Steve, if you want to comment on that in the future, you go ahead and do that. But that's a light I recommend. I do have a link in the show notes today for that light. Uh, make sure you keep batteries for it. If you have this light, and nine batteries, three in it, and six set aside, and you don't get through a blackout uh, with this light still having power, you've got a real long-term blackout. This this will get you through a lot, and uh, it's the kind of thing that I want to grab if I have to check the ducks at night or something like that because I think there's a predator out there. Uh, I like the focus of the beam. I like so much about this light. I highly recommend it, and I recommend it over anything uh, from the old school incandescent world. This is this is modern technology. Those incandescent bulbs, they made them improvements and stuff like that, but it ain't much different uh, than turn-of-the-century Thomas Edison technology. Uh, it's time to step into the future, in my view. Let's take another one. Question for Keith Snow on this, and this is from me. Um, I am having my kitchen torn apart. It's going to take about three to four weeks for everything to be redone. New cabinets, granite countertops. We're putting in a really cool coffee station and wet bar and wine rack and uh, some shelving for some of my wife's collectibles. This is going to be a beautiful kitchen when we're done. Uh, we're limited on the size of our kitchen with what we can do, but we have uh, we've saved up for almost three years now to be able to do this, and that's all great. But it means for about three to four weeks, Keith, I'm going to be sitting here with no stuff to cook and prepare meals with. I wonder if you have any suggestions and ideas for meal prep on the grill, meal prep without your kitchen in the interim, anything like that you can do to help me get through uh, these three weeks of banging and sawing and tile ripping out and all the stuff going in and still eat well without going out every night. Keith, what say you, sir? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating, and I wanted to answer the question 
about doing a kitchen remodel and having to cook out on a grill or what I would call a makeshift kitchen. Now, um, getting a new kitchen is an awesome thing, but certainly can be a little bit um, inconvenient, I would say, particularly if your house is existing. It's one thing to get a great kitchen before you move in, but once you're living there, obviously this is a problem. So I would recommend this. First of all, jump on to Amazon.com and I would buy a portable propane cooktop. And you can do anything from a kind of cheapy, um, you know, little one burner thing that just takes uh, propane cans. Those are the things if you go to a restaurant and there's a chef making omelets to order. In most cases, they've got these little portable burners. You just take a can of, a little can of propane. It looks like a can of spray paint. It clips in there and you can turn that thing on and they get pretty hot and they're stable and you can boil water and cook and all that. However, if you're the person uh, that likes to do a lot of cooking, uh, and you can get those for about $28 on Amazon, maybe cheaper at Walmart, but um, also on Amazon, there's a thing called the Sportsman's Double Burner Outdoor Cast Iron Propane Stove. Looking at it right now, 48 bucks, and it's a double burner propane, and they're big you know, they're big burners and it's a stout looking thing made out of cast iron. It looks like something you could, you know, take tailgating or into the woods and do some serious cooking, or it might even be the type of thing, you know, come Thanksgiving time. If you want to fry a turkey, you've, you've got this thing here. So this would be really helpful to have that. That would open up a lot of opportunities for cooking in your um, makeshift kitchen. Also, nowadays they make um, good size uh, what do you call those things? Crock pots, good size crock pots, and they, they're digital, and they're probably two and a half times the size of a little teeny round one with a cheapo plastic lid. One of those would be handy as well. Now, I've um, got some notes here. What I would do is um, make some marinades um, for steak and chicken, and that would be, uh, and I would put this probably in some type of a bottle, like uh, oil, garlic powder, onion powder, lime juice, oregano, maybe some of my northern Italian if you don't have oregano, and I would leave that sitting around. That's going to be great to marinate things that you're going to grill. Then I would make um, two master sauces, and think of it this way. Um, and you probably have a wok. If not, I would I would definitely get a, get yourself a wok because woks are terrific outside, believe it or not. And on those portable burners or even right on the grill, it would work. But assuming you're going to get a portable burner, a wok would be great. And what you could do is make a few stir-fry sauces. Now, you could make two of them, uh, one for chicken and one for beef. Now, the, the chicken one, I would, again, find some type of a container, like a, a tall Tupperware or something that would hold maybe a quart of this um, liquid, figuring that over this period while your kitchen is down, you could make this several times. So for chicken, I would put in, um, and you can do all this stuff before you shut your kitchen down, obviously. If you've got to freeze it, that's great, or put it out in a um, refrigerator in the garage, that'll work too. But I would do um, chicken stock, fresh ginger, soy sauce, sesame oil, rice wine vinegar, and white pepper with a little bit of oil. Now, that would be something that you could make a quick stir-fry with. So you would take chicken, um, 
like chicken breasts or I would prefer thighs, chop them up. A um, little oil on your portable burner in a wok, really hot. Uh, if you've got an onion, great, throw it in there with the chicken. And when it starts to get some good color on it, you can throw in any vegetables. Nowadays, you can get lots of vegetables from the store that are already pre-chopped in little containers. Now, obviously, um, when you need all the help you can get, this is something that would be fine to do. And, you know, bell peppers, onions, whatever it might be, you could toss those in there, stir fry them together. And then in goes some of this um, master sauce. And you would let it come up to a boil and then thicken it up with just cornstarch and water. And you you guys don't uh, do a lot of carbs, so this is perfect just as it is in a bowl. And you've got yourself a nice, uh, like, Asian chicken. You definitely could do things like broccoli in there, and you can get broccoli in bags already cut up. So that would be perfect. And with this double burner, you could be steaming broccoli on one side and, and get your stir-fry going and, you know, add it in there. Another thing you could do is um, diced up beef so you could buy things in the store like a flank steak just cut that up and same thing onions peppers in your wok really hot and then you would have a beef sauce and that one would be beef stock ginger green onion sesame oil soy sauce uh, orange zest and rice wine vinegar again you would toss this in at the end when it starts to boil you could thicken it up with a little bit of cornstarch and now you've got a great beef stir-fry. Also, I would be very keen on um, things like Thai food. And if you have a uh, slow cooker, like I mentioned, you make up a sauce ahead of time that's um, yogurt, plain yogurt, curry powder, coconut milk, lime juice, minced green onion, garlic, regular onion, fish sauce, sugar, and white pepper. And then you can take chicken thighs right out of the package toss a couple of packages full of them into your slow cooker you put this sauce over them with some fresh cilantro and you let it go for three or four hours whatever it might be and it will be delicious you can later thicken it up if you want to uh, maybe put it over white rice whatever that is a great idea and um, you could as well do things for the grill. Now, I know you talked specifically about the grill. I'm getting to that now. I would be making ahead. I would be thinking, okay, what do we like to grill? Burgers, chicken, steaks. And I would um, make up burgers ahead of time. So maybe, you know, and, and try to plan this four-week period out because you're really busy. You don't want to be coming to the end of the day and figuring, what the heck am I going to cook? So if you have some type of a plan, and you may not do this in a normal week, but it might make sense to take the stress away to do it now but let's say during this you know period you're going to have burgers four times how about that so i would estimate how many you would need get them preformed and i would freeze them in a manner that you could take out what you need in the morning and then they'd be ready to go on the grill so that is something you definitely could do um also I would take chicken thighs and I would marinate those chicken thighs and put them in a zip bag and freeze those in individual portions. Maybe you're going to have something like grilled chicken thighs two or three times. Same thing with steaks. I'd rub them with oil and um, freeze them and you'd be good to go to take them out in the morning and they'd be defrosted hopefully by the end of the day and you could grill those. And just because you're you know, working on a grill doesn't mean you can't have something like an Asian chicken salad. If you go to the store these days, 
You can buy uh, mixed greens with all different types of vegetables like um, shredded carrots and you could chop up some green onions and throw it in there and then take some of your chicken thighs and grill them, cut it up, toss it in the salad, make yourself a little uh, sesame soy vinaigrette, toss some of that vinaigrette on there and now you've got you know a really healthy Asian salad and basically it's it's a mixing bowl and your grill. That does most of the work. You may have to make up the dressing ahead of time since the kitchen will be down. Also, things like desserts. You can make amazing desserts on the grill. Right now, there's peaches available, and you could do this sort of al fresco. You go to the store, get yourself a little tub of mascarpone cheese, and this comes in a little um, short, round I call it a tub. It's about an inch tall, maybe five inches in diameter, mascarpone cheese. This is an Italian cheese that appears in tiramisu. And what's cool about it is it's got a good bit of fat, but zero carbohydrates for those of you watching that. So it doesn't have a lot of sugar, but it tastes amazing. And what you can do is take peaches, you take the pits out, and you just oil them a little bit or even spray them with a little cooking spray. You put them on a clean, hot oiled grill and uh, or you could do it in a cast iron skillet just in a little bit of butter right on the grill or even the propane burner and that actually works really well like you take the peaches put your cast iron on the burner get that thing good and hot put a little bit of um, butter in the pan some brown sugar and then nestle the peaches right on cut side down let them cook for a few minutes you turn them over and then you scoop out some of the mascarpone cheese and you kind of fill those little holes just smear it on there if you want to get really fancy you could on the other side of the burner you could be reducing a good quality balsamic vinegar down uncovered boil it away until it reduces down to a syrup once it looks syrupy let it cool down you drizzle that on your um, peaches and mascarpone and you're living large even though your kitchen is uh not doing so well so i hope i've given you some ideas there um i could go on and on and on about this um it's actually a pretty exciting challenge working from a makeshift kitchen but i uh, I hope it all works out for you and i wanted to um, encourage all your listeners to visit harvesteating.com check out my podcast also those of you that love the spices we're offering free shipping for a limited time you can get that steak seasoning and carolina competition barbecue um, and i'll pay for the shipping so do that because that's going to run out soon and lastly i've heard from a lot of you about the um, pasta sauces being sold on amazon my sauce line is going to be transferred to amazon exclusively and I am looking for people that have bought it before, my customers, and also new people to give it a try off of Amazon. If you want a great coupon that will save you on your first order, email me, Keith, at HarvestEating.com, and I'll put you on a list, and that will go out shortly. And with that, I appreciate everybody, and I hope you all have a great weekend out there. Jack, thanks so much for doing what you do, and take care, everybody. Hi, Jack. It's DH from Colorado's Western Slope. I have a comment slash question. I noticed that we talk about taxes in a very particular way. We say the possessive pronoun, your taxes, or his taxes. Did he pay his taxes? Why don't we use the indefinite article, the taxes, or, in my opinion, more appropriate, their taxes? Do you think this was intentional, changing our language? Did somebody train us to say your taxes? If you could change the verbiage, what would you make it? How would we describe the taxes? Especially if we were going to try to emphasize the 
extortive nature of the text we have now, as you've talked about many times in the past. So the final question is, how would you describe taxes in common language if you could uh, have your choice? Thanks. Bye. Very interesting question, and the entire psychology and brainwashing, et cetera, that go along with it could probably make an entire episode. But I'm going to flip your question, and I'm going to answer the second question first and then talk about what it means second. So I'm going to start out with how would I define taxes? What what do I think an accurate description of taxes? Like, is it their taxes or our taxes or the tax? Uh-uh, no. The words I would use, you used one of them there. It's legalized extortion. Now, I know what people are thinking. Well, Jack is a crazy anarchist, blah, 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 blah. And it's just not plausible to live this way and whatever. Before we even examine uh, whether it works or not, let's just see if is it just because something doesn't work or or, or isn't a viable alternative, at least in your mind, does not mean that the description is inaccurate. So if I'm going to say it's legalized extortion, I would like to read for you the dictionary definitions of legalized and extortion. Legalize, past tense legalized, uh, so legalized would be it's already been done. Make something that was previously illegal permissible by law. Just think about that. To make something that was previously illegal permissible by law. Okay. Okay. What is the dictionary definition of extortion? The practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. Huh. So, legalized extortion, by its dictionary definition, would be making something that was previously illegal permissible by law, specifically the practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. Synonyms, blackmail, shakedown, formal extraction. (laughs) Okay, so does my definition define taxation? Okay, taxation is the taking of another person's property from them. Whether you know whether whether you think it's good or not, that's what it is. Taxation is the taking of your property from you. Until such time that the governments establish taxation, the entire concept of one person taking something from another person against their will was considered unlawful and still is today if anybody but the government does it. So it was an, it's an illegal practice to take from another person their property, okay? It, and, and what government's done through creating of tax codes and tax laws is to make that previously illegal activity legal for them to do. So we know that we've taken a previously illegal action and legalized it. So we know full well that my term legalized is accurate and applies to taxation. So now all we have to determine is what is extortion? What is extortion? And does extortion describe taxation? Okay. The practice of obtaining something, okay, especially money, through force or threats. Come pray tell how does the government obtain the tax monies that you pay? Through force and threats, obviously. What happens if you don't pay your taxes? They either take the money against your will through seizing it, they fine you, they imprison you, 
They garnish your way. One way or another, they use force to get it from you. Shakedown. Shakedown is one of the, the, the synonyms of, of, uh, of, of, the, of the word extortion. A shakedown can be defined as a swindle or a piece of extortion. A swindle. Well, what, what's a swindle? A swindle is when you think you're getting something, but you don't. Right? Like, so a swindle would be, hey, here's a, here's a title to a property uh, on a beach. And it ends up being a title to a property in Arizona. And I say, oh, it'll be a beach someday after I have your money. That's a swindle, right? So uh, you're going to play me in pool, and I've, I've, I've done a sting on you. I've convinced you that I'm an average player and that we're equally matched through feigning incompetence. And then when real money's on the line, I reveal my capabilities and take you for all you're worth. That's a swindle. Taxes. We're going to take these monies and use them uh, to do things for the people of the country, but yet they get invested into businesses and corporations and other. It's a swindle. So it, it meets every single criteria you could come up with for the definition of legalized extortion. That's that's what taxes are. Now, of course, you're not going to get the public education system or the or the government admitting that. But I would I would debate anyone from any level of education up or down, on the organized rules of debate with a third-party moderator on whether or not it is accurate to describe taxation as legalized extortion. And I would, I would anybody who wants to do it, step up. We'll put it on like a live feed, YouTube live feed, or however we have to do that to do it live, and we'll do it. I, I, I would love that. Because there is no way that anybody could ever make a case against that claim. Because I've just I've just done it right again. Just to be clear, legalizes to make something that was previously illegal permissible under law, and extortion is the practice of obtaining something, specifically money, through force or threats. That's taxation. Now, if we're gonna if we're gonna just accept the fact that okay, that we're never gonna call it legalized extortion. Because extortionists never say they're extorting you. They say they're, they're helping you, they're working with you, whatever. You know? At least a blackmailer's honest. Right? That's another synonym. Um, formal, ex, 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 formal extraction's another uh, definition. But uh, if we're not going to call it any of these things, right? if we're just going to say it's taxes, and we're going to call legalized extortion is going to be shorthanded with the word taxes, If I say your taxes, that, that infers your responsibility. You did it. It's all on you. Well, what else does it infer? If I can get people saying, well, your taxes, then they say my taxes, right? So that means that I am responsible, right? But I'm also, when I'm saying your, now I'm also assigning the responsibility to others. Well, you should pay, and you should pay, and you should pay, and they should pay. And what does that say? Tax the rich, That's how you, you sell the myth of taxing the rich to the sheep. You get them saying your taxes, and that means somebody else's taxes. I don't like their taxes either. Because their taxes is somebody else's thievery is acceptable as long as it's greater thievery than mine. In other words, because someone has produced more, they should be required to pay more. Which is kind of backwards, isn't it? Should we not say that those who have produced the most have done the most already and have the least obligation to others. I mean, people that make a billion dollars don't make it as self-employed individuals. They create hundreds and thousands of jobs. And in a way, that's what we get. But we don't get it anywhere near the fair system that it's supposed to be.
So I, I'm opposed to taxation in general. I think that the government should raise money through selling its services to those who willingly want to purchase them. That would be a free market in a stateless society. How could that work? Well, it might. But if there's going to be taxes, they should be minimal and they should be equitable. Uh, we call it progressive taxation to tax one group of people a higher percentage than others. If there's going to be a tax on income, it should be flat. If there's going to be a tax on property, it should be flat. Those who own more pay more. Those who make more pay more. It's a very simple system, and that's why they don't want it. Because then you quickly figure out that everybody is being treated the same, and it's unfair to everyone. But legalized extortion. Now, what if we're going to have taxes, and we're going to accept it, and we're not going to call it legalized stealing, which is what it is, what would be, under the current vernacular, an accurate way to describe it? It would be the people's money. It would be our money. It's not their taxes. It's our money. We have collectively, it is our funds. It is our funding. It is our trust fund. It's our money. It's not their money. Okay, It's all of our money because we've all paid in through hundreds, honestly, of little places that monies go in that are taxes. Mandatory fees are taxes. Okay? Mandatory fees are also a form of a tax. So your license fees for your vehicle are a tax. Let's be honest. You, you, well, you don't have to have a vehicle. Yeah, you kind of do today. You really do. You know, 90% of people do anyway, and they know that. And that, so a mandatory fee to do something is another form of tax. When you look at it that way, we're all paying hundreds of individual taxes. And it's all our money. It's not their money. It's, and that's exactly the problem. See, the politicians see it as their money. That's their money. That's why they have a collection agency, a group of mafia called the IRS, Ira Ramon Sancia, the biggest gangster in the world, to go get their money when you don't give them their money. The practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. Mr. Smith, we see that you're in, 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 in deep here. You owe $40,000 from last year. You don't have $40,000. We're going to make a payment plan. You're going to have to stick to it, or we're going to have to take other means, possibly seizing your property and selling them uh, to, to pay off your debt to us. See? Us, U.S., us. See how it works? It's us and them. Us and them to them is us, all the people that sit at the top of the pyramid, and them are all you and me and everybody else. And if you want to get into us, you got two ways. You find a sponsor to make you a politician or a high-level bureaucrat, or you make enough money to buy your way into the elite top. And then you can participate in legalized extortion rather than be the victim of it. That's what it is. Again, I take on all comers in a debate. With that said, let's go ahead and take another uh, one of your... Actually, a question I have for expert council member. Uh, council member we've had in the past that's now back, uh, Tim Glantz of uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus. He can answer all your questions on military surplus stuff. He can answer it on communications and ham radio uh, and military vehicles and bug-out vehicles in general. That's kind of his uh, his forte. He is a chief uh, warrant officer in the United States Army National Guard. I believe it's either that or reserves. Uh, and he's been a 63 Whiskey, which is a vehicle mechanic for most of his career. 
And uh, But he also, again, runs the military surplus store called Old Grouches. So my question to Tim is, what's what's a great value in military surplus right now? What's some of the best values out there? And what might we be looking for to show up soon? Hi, Jack, and everyone out there in TSP land. This is Tim Glance with Old Grouches Military Surplus with an answer to a great question. What's a great deal in the surplus market today, and what do I see coming down the road? Um Anything right now, we're going into summer, so you can catch anything from dealers like myself that's winter stuff. Uh, we don't like to hold on to inventory half the year. Um, one thing we're, I and a lot of others are liquidating are the military Polar Tech fleece overalls. It's really nice, heavy-duty American-made stuff. and The same thing in the ski shop would cost you $40, $60, and I think I'm selling mine at either 5 or 6 right now on the website because uh, I bought them right and I don't want to sit on them all, all summer. Wool blankets are the same way. Now, a lot of wool blankets are starting to dry up, uh, getting to be few and far between, but I've still got some good deals on some Israeli ones for twelve ninety-five. Uh Some other people have some European ones. One thing to watch if you're buying wool blankets, uh, make sure you buy a real military one and not one that says military type or style because most of those are coming out of China and India, and it's a, it's a lower-quality reprocessed wool. It's not very good. Um, Alice gear. You know, any of you that were in in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, you know Alice Gear. You know, it's still good stuff. It's still functional, and it's cheap right now. You can get a complete Alice pack in the $40, $45 range. You can get it upgraded to what they call a Hellcat kit, which uses the improved and much thicker uh, Molly waist belt and shoulder straps and still, you know, be under $75 for a great pack. Uh, once again, all American-made and really rugged. Um, you can get a complete LBE setup. You can get, uh, you know, a pistol belt, suspenders, ammo pouches, canteen, everything that standard issue for a soldier for all those years right now for 20 bucks. And, you know, for, for somebody that's got an entry level weapon, AR, and they want just some basic low carrying gear, it's a good value. You're not going to put a lot of money in it, but it'll just get the job done. And it'll, for most people, it's more than enough. Um, the military sleeping bags are still a good deal, although the prices are starting to go up. Uh, the military sleep system has a lightweight bag, a heavy bag, and a Gore-Tex bivy cover and a stuff sack. And you can use all of it together, and it's rated to 40 below with thermal underwear, or you can just use the lightweight patrol bag in the summer. So, uh, you know, right now those are running in the 110 to $130 range, and uh, you get basically two sleeping bags plus a Gore-Tex bivy, and it's a system that'll work in all seasons in all of North America. Um, paracord, the military just released a bunch of paracord. It's, uh, stuff that was actually cut off of parachutes, so it's usually in 30, 35 foot lengths. But, uh, it's good usable stuff. It, you know, you get paracord that's been jumped on a parachute. It's not really seen a lot of use or abuse, and when they retire the chutes, they cut it off. Uh, I've got that in my store right now for 550 a pound. It's easy to remember. 550 cord for 550 a pound. And it is really, uh, the pound's got about 220, 225 feet. So compared to what most of the new stuff is selling for right now, between 8 and $10 for uh, 100 feet, it's a much better deal as long as you don't need the long lengths. And uh, lastly, for the what's the deal right now, the government has released decades of policy saying they never would, and they're selling Humvees. So there's a lot of pitfalls that go with them, like they're hard to get titled for on-road use in most states, but... Where surplus Humvees were rare and would fetch thirty to fifty thousand dollars for a good running one six eight months ago. Now because they're selling them, uh, you can pick one up for ten to fifteen thousand. Uh, 
and I expect that to keep dropping, but uh, definitely anybody thinking about doing that, do your research before you do. As for what's coming down the road, uh, it's always hard to say, but what I do see coming, the, the next step in the Army's camouflage debacle is, is coming in a few months where they're going to switch to a, uh, a new pattern away from that gray-green so-called universal camo pattern to a pattern that looks just like multicam because it's just a slightly earlier version of it. So a lot of that uh, uh, UCP, or as, as a lot of people call it, ACU gear is going to be out there. It's not a very good camouflage pattern. It's not a very good color, but a little bit of spray paint. And you can make that easily uh, work in just about any climate. And I'm actually about to publish a video showing just how to spray paint any gear you might get like that. I would look at uh, that to be coming up in the next six months to five years. We'll probably see a lot of that gear coming down the road for that long, the way the Army works. And the only other one I see big time coming down the road is a lot of European stuff is starting to come through. For example, I see a lot of stuff coming out of Greece right now with their financial issues. They're selling everything down the road, so it's going to be interesting to see what's coming out of there. Uh, thanks for the question. I hope this lets some folks find some good deals and know what to look for. You can always find my shop online at www.oldgrouch.com and look for a major website change there coming soon with a whole new look and lots of upgrades. And we post a lot of deals on Facebook that never go anywhere else, so uh, make sure to look at our Facebook, to, Facebook page, too. And don't forget that TSP uh, Member Support Brigade members get a 10% discount with us. Thanks for the question, and thanks for all you do, Jack. Hey, Jack. This is Sam in Jeffersontown, Kentucky. I just listened to your show about um, growing up around guns and, and, and what you were taught. Uh, by your family, and I uh, had my daughter go to conservation camp last year, and, and I'm not a hunter, but she really took to the 22, and, and uh, she's actually pretty darn good at it. And so how does a guy who, uh, you know, I, I can fish with uh, with the best of them, but I've just never hunted, how do I go about getting into hunting with my daughter? Because she's expressed an interest in it. Originally, my idea of having her uh, learn a little bit about guns was just to uh, not be afraid of them so she wouldn't be a part of the anti-gun movement. But now that she's taken kind of a liking towards it, I just want to know how to make that next step. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Well, I think that, first of all, it's awesome. I, I, I think that's just like one of the most awesome things in the world to have a young person uh, be sent out to learn a little bit about conservation and firearms and hunting and then say, I want to go to the next level. And that is such an awesome way. I think there's there's a lesson here, again, for people. And, you know, we talked a lot about scouting recently and things like that. And I, boy, I've seen fathers make huge mistakes by putting their child into scouting instead of getting them interested in scouting and then walking away and getting the kid to go, can I do it, can I do it, Dad? And then going, yeah, here you go. Um, so you send them off to do an activity that's going to be a one-time activity and done. Uh, that way you get a little bit more buy-in from kids than something to see. That's part of why kids, when you get them into like scouting, a lot of times there's resistance dads because, and I know moms do too, but dads especially, because they know it's an ongoing thing. But if you send them off to do something that they're going to do, complete and come back, they're less resistant. That get, that sort of, And if you do that with a lot of things, like parents always, and I, I'd say a lot of things are like that too. Like Instead of like putting your kid on a baseball team, Get them into like a, 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 some kind of organized thing with other kids to play baseball for like a day and then play football for like a day 
and then like play soccer for like a day. Let them find out what does it for them. And they say, I want to do more of this. So there's a huge lesson there alone. Now, the next part, though, it's complicated, right? So you don't know how to hunt because you're not a hunter and you've never hunted. And you're not sure where to go, what to do, uh, what to do once you, you, if you're successful, then what the heck do you do, right? So there's a lot of different things we can do to, to, to prepare ourselves for the situation. Um, one, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense to sm start with small game. Uh, bag limits are large. Uh, seasons are long. Some places, certain animals are in season all the time, though that may not mean you want to kill one. Like squirrels are in season pretty much in Texas all the time. Want to shoot a squirrel? You got a hunting license? Go shoot a squirrel. It's okay. No one cares. I think there actually is a season listed, and it's something like you know J J June 1st to J you know uh, or J J July 31st to June uh, June 1st to like July. What am I trying to say here? It's the whole year, right? No closed season. But there's places where they they list the season. Pennsylvania does that on certain things, and it's just like one date to the other, and that's the whole year. Uh, like crows in Pennsylvania is the way they do that. Anyway, so there's a lot of opportunity. Um, it's usually a lot easier to acquire access to land, and the public lands that are available aren't infiltrated with 5,000 deer hunters per acre when it's squirrel season if you go at the right time of year. So squirrels, I think doves are another great option. Uh, those are probably your two easiest. Rabbits are good as well, and all small game. But doves have an early season. You stand in a field, you wait for them, you shoot them, and if you can't find a place to get permission to hunt, Uh, or a public area where you can hunt, or just an accepted area to hunt. There's places it's not really public hunting lands, but people hunt there and no one says nothing. If you can't find any of that, dove leases are 50 bucks a day in most places. You'll find one somewhere. Check Craigslist. So those are two great ways to start. And then remember this. It's not called killing. It's called hunting. So the majority of what you're doing as a hunter, and doves break this if you have a good field to hunt. You just wait. Here they come and you shoot them. And you do a lot more missing than, than hitting. But, you know, with squirrels or deer or anything, there's more activity in the pursuit and learning how to, how to find them and reading sign and all that than there is in the actual dispatch of the animal. And I think a lot of parents, when their kids want to go hunting, they feel such an obligation to bring them to success, with the success being defined as killing the animal, that they let that inhibit getting out there and just hunting and failing, because failing is part of learning. And your child needs to learn from you that you can attempt something, do it over and over again, fail repeatedly, and eventually have success, and find a lot of pleasure, happiness, and achievement in that success because it was earned. So just do it is part of it. Uh, next, I would say, you know, it's probably not a good time to hunt a squirrel right now. Um, even if, even if the, uh, the, the legality is there. This is you're full of fleas right now. It's hot out, whatever they're breeding. I, I don't want to shoot a squirrel for food right now. Um, other than a survival situation or just, uh, uh if I was doing some trapping demonstration or whatever, we caught one. Okay. Now I'll go ahead and eat it. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to do it, but there's no reason you can't find out where are the public lands that are available for hunting and just start taking a walk, get a pair of binoculars for. Get a pair of binoculars for yourself, get, get a couple staffs, uh, and go out there and start taking up hiking and scout, just like I talked about we did when I was a kid. If you know fishing, take her fishing places where you could also hunt. And then just take a walk. The fish stop biting. Let's take a walk and see where squirrel nests are. Just start doing that. 
Another really uh, solid recommendation I have for you is take a hunter safety course. Um, it's great now that a lot of states allow you to take it, you know, with video, and that's fine. But but don't do that. Not in your situation. Go with your daughter to a two-day on-site hunter safety course given by your state. They're either cheap or free. Sit through the class with her. Take the test with her. Talk to the person giving the class. Talk to the other people there. And learn places that you can go. Start forming relationships through that. You'll find it enjoyable if, if you do that. Learn where all the state game lands or, or, or open public hunting lands are in your state. And just start going there. Take trips. Take a little backpack trip. Take a day trip with her. Um, you don't always have to have the gun to be doing... See, the hunting process is multiple things. It's not just going out with a gun and shooting something. It is the scouting is a huge part of hunting. And the scouting can take place all year long, independent of seasons. And those are how I would get started. You know, Do you want to get a dog eventually and bring it? That's a whole new level. I would first learn to hunt, and then if you want to do a dog thing, you add a dog. Because you're learning two totally different skill sets. Dog training, uh, actually three. Dog training, dog handling, because training a dog is one thing. Handling a dog in an open environment where there's not a fence and it's not a dog park and you're not just sitting there with a clicker getting them to eat a treat. Totally different. And then hunting with the dog. So we learn to handle the dog. We learn to get the dog to perform behaviors. And then we introduce our participating in that behavior with the dog. So there's a three-layer system there. So I would add that later if you're going to do that. But dog, dogs as hunting partners are amazing. Um, and, and that, I would just take it from there and don't sweat this. Don't sweat this. The biggest advice I can give you is take a walk and take a hunter safety course. As to butchering the animals, um, you might want to take a little initiative here and go out and pop a squirrel or a rabbit or something like that with a pellet gun when she's not around so you can screw it up and feel okay with it. Watch some YouTube videos and learn basic meat preparation. Um, if you if you keep small livestock, you're you're ahead of the game. I'll tell you this though: when you learn to skin a squirrel and gut a squirrel, a deer's a big squirrel. It's not hard from that point forward. It really isn't. Um, there's so much that goes with this though as it gets more complex. I don't want to go any deeper with it. But start out with a walk. Start out with small game. Start out with start out with squirrel and dove. And if you want to look at larger game, hire a guide. Go hunting with a guide. Go to a hunting ranch. I don't mean a preserve where they you know, have 100 acres and all the animals are inside a fence. I mean an actual hunting ranch like we have here in South Texas or whatever. You know, and, and, and hunt with a guide. But get the proficiency up for shot placement, larger scale uh, calibers and things like that first. And do that training with squirrels and dove. Is probably Squirrels, dove, and rabbit. They're, they're, depending on where you live, you might have to find an analog if you live in a place with, without those three, but there's that's most of the country that has them. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take a question for expert council member here. This one is for council member Stephen Harris, and uh, Stephen Harris serves on the board at Citizens Assisting Citizens, which is the emergency disaster response team uh, charity that I set up uh, several years ago, and it's been a long long time getting everything set up and running, but they've had some real advancements lately, uh, and they're now you know ready to deploy, and they actually had their first deployment. I just wanted Steve to come on today and give an update on Citizens Assisting Citizens, telling you guys how you can get involved or how you can help support Citizens Assisting Citizens and kind of where we're at now and where we're going next. Steve, take it away, sir. Hi, this is Steve Harris. I have a little bit of a different report for you today. 
after Superstorm Sandy happened in, in October of 2012, Jack Spierko was frustrated at the lack of response and the very slow response of the government and, and other private aid organizations to help such a large population of people that were affected by the storm. Jack envisioned a disaster response team that could move quickly, faster than the Red Cross, faster than FEMA, and get there before anyone else arrived and to help people in need, and the teams would be made up of you. People from the Survival Podcast would make up this disaster response team. What Jack did is he picked a group of experts in emergency management, law enforcement, disaster preparation, and a non-profit 5013C was formed and staffed with all these experts who volunteered their time as the board of directors. I, Steve Harris, am on that board of directors of what became CACteam.com, Citizens Assisting Citizens. And I'm here to tell you the story of our first deployment. It took a great deal of work organizing that had to be done from the ground up, and it took two and a half years, but we have now made our first deployment. Van, Texas is a town of approximately 2,600 people covering approximately three square miles and located about 74 miles north and east of Dallas, Texas. Local buildings are made up of mostly wood and brick structures. On Sunday, the 10th of May, 2015, at approximately 8.45 p.m. Central Time, a tornado struck the town, destroying approximately one-third of all the buildings. Preliminary ex- estimates by the National Weather Service rates the tornado as an EF3. The Van Texas tornado was part of a large weather system which affected the southern, central, and northern plains beginning on Friday and continued through the weekend. This weather system caused numerous flooding emergencies and several tornadoes were, were reported throughout the affected region. Beginning on Thursday, the 7th of May, it was becoming apparent through various sources that a dangerous storm system was developing with a high potential for flooding, hail, and tornadoes. On Sunday, May 10th, the tornado struck Van, Texas. On Monday, May 11th, I was contacted by Brian, and we had a conversation regarding his deployment to Van, Texas. This was between the executive director and uh, Brian. Uh, by this time, the weather system had largely left the area, and due to its proximity to Van, we decided that a deployment wasn't in order. Early in the morning, Brian was on his way to work, and he heard about the tornado damage in Van, Texas. After communicating with the executive director, they decided to to deploy, and he headed home. This was at 7.15 a.m. At 7.30, Sam's Club was called, and they were asked to pull one-liter bottles of water, crackers, and baby wipes. Sam's Club is our, our main supply house for all of our food and water items. In certain areas of Texas, we also use HEB. At 8.15, Brian arrived at home, hooked up his trailer, and headed to Sam's Club in Sherman, Texas. At 9 o'clock a.m., he left Sherman for Van, Texas, and arrived there two and a half hours later. From radio and Internet, we knew there was damage to one-third of the town. We knew there was a Red Cross shelter established at the Baptist Church in the middle of the town. This is all we knew. We entered Van from north on Maple Street, where Maple intersects with Maine. We were stopped at a police checkpoint. 
we, we were wearing our green CAC vest and identified ourselves as volunteers with food and water. We were allowed to pass the police checkpoint and turn east on Main. Hey, all CAC team volunteers with vehicles are issued official CAC official identification to be worn around your neck, and you get a CAC team green high visibility vest with, uh, and you also get a CAC team magnetic sign for the doors of your vehicle. We look official. This is how we get through police checkpoints. Continuing on, this is where we began to see damage and chaos. Very large power lines were strewn across the road, hanging from trees and wrapped around houses. Electric crews were there with at least 40 bucket trucks, and at this point it became difficult to navigate since most of the decisions were made by the authorities on each corner. We ended up at the corner of Pennsylvania and Magnolia. This was on a busy street that was on the back side of the primary area of damage. We obtained permission from the homeowner to park in the street in front of their house and set up in their front yard to distribute water and snacks. As we unloaded and set up, many people stopped for water. Most of these people were volunteers there to help with tree removal. Some had chainsaws and some were just wearing gloves. So in CAC team, we just don't help people. We help people who are helping people. All these people were dirty and wet from working in the humidity, and as soon as the canopy was up, people began to stop and ask for directions and information. A pop-up canopy, tables, chairs are part of what a vehicle deploys with. We now also have a banner for the pop-up canopy that says food, water, and phone charging, so people know what they're getting from us. After a couple of hours, we were asked to remove our truck off the main road and to allow utility trucks more room to work on the down power lines. We then obtained permission from another homeowner with a, with a large driveway on the same corner and moved our setup there. As the day progressed, all of the streets where we were became passable. Then all of the driveways were cleared. Once the utility trucks came through and cut off the remaining trees from the power lines, the crowds began to dissipate. By this time, there were more solid checkpoints in place. And I do not think moving further into the damage area would have been possible. We decided to leave once we did not have anyone asking for food or water. This was about six and a half hours after we arrived. In all, we passed out around 10 boxes of crackers, and there's 40 boxes, 40 cracker packages to a box, six crackers in a package, so approximately 400 packages of crackers were passed out. And in addition to this, about 250 liters of water were passed out, and there were about six or eight cell phones plugged into our charging system from our vehicle throughout the day. Funny, there was no interest in the baby wipes. Nearly 150 people were served by the CAC team. Some observations. The water service was still on, uh, so the main customer for water were volunteers helping in the, the relief expert. Many cell phones were useless. Some texting was available on our AT&T Androids. We were never able to place or receive a phone call or to use Zello. No signal reports from all other carriers. With cell service down, so many people were out, they were not interested in charging their phones yet. 
We were only there in the daylight, so none of our lighting was tested or needed. We had trash bags with us, but no trash cans. We need to bring a trash can on the next deployment. So that was the after-action report from Brian, the CAC team member who deployed to Van, Texas. So where is CAC team right now? Greg Gray on the board of directors with me and myself had a show with Jack on November 20th of 2014, last year. This is where we announced CAC team was open for taking volunteers, and we explained how everything worked. If you want to listen to that show, know more about CAC team, go to CACteam.com and scroll down to the bottom, and you'll find a play button to listen to the show. That show brought us some 200-plus volunteers who signed up and wanted to be a part of CAC team. We also asked for money donations from the TSP community to help fund us so we could start out. TSP is our sole source of finances and volunteers for CAC team. We got $1,500 donated to us after the show. The donation part of the show was an abysmal failure. There was not enough money to finance the outfitting of the vehicles and to buy the food and the water needed for deployment. What are we going to do was the big question. Well, I'll tell you, we did not quit. We were determined to find a way to make CAC team work, and we started to put things into action. We will make do with what we have, and we will be happy for it. Okay, we can't buy all of the things for the Scout and the Anchor vehicles, and some of those items are a 400-watt inverter, a pop-up canopy, two magnetic signs, flashing orange, orange strobe light, two six-foot tables, two camping chairs, uh, some Band-Aids, some uh, light reflectors, two 60-watt equivalent LED light bulbs, Three USB chargers that have six ports each, so we can charge the minimum of 18 phones at once. We have half a dozen micro USB cables for charging. We have half a dozen Apple cables for charging. And plus we have an extension cord. So this all comes to something less than $500 to totally outfit a vehicle with what needs to respond to a disaster. This does not include the food and water that it picks up before driving to a disaster. So we asked the volunteers we had, how many of you can self-fund your vehicle? How many of you can pay for the needed things to get ready to deploy? That way we could use our $1,500 to pay for food and water for the deployments. About 20 people said, yeah, we can do that, and they started. So we have people funding and building their own vehicle. At the time of the Van Texas tornado, we have two vehicles 100% complete and ready for deployment, one in the Dallas area, one in the Oklahoma City area. When the Van Texas tornado hit, the Dallas vehicle rolled out and responded. We made our first response, and it worked. We did it. It took two and a half years of work, but we did it. CAC team works. I learned that before you can win a race, you have to be able to finish it. We finished the race, and we are now moving forward to win races.
We have 10 regional coordinators who are each in charge of their area of that, of the part of the USA. We have another 15 people outfitting their vehicles right now for deployment. When you sign up with CAC team, you get a CAC badge to be worn around your neck, a CAC team high visibility vest, CAC door magnets for your car, and you look official. We have put in place a system of debit cards. Normally, we call the Sam's Club closest to you and have them pull the crackers, the water, and the other items you need to take on a deployment, and we pay for it remotely, and then you go and pick them up. But if we can't do that for you, we instantaneously load money onto your issued CAC debit card, and you can go and make the purchases of the food and water for the, the for the deployment, and off you go. We know what we are doing. We are now a very well-organized, fully operational disaster response group. The executive director, the board of directors, and the regional coordinators are all some of the highest quality people you could want to meet. We are all professionals. There is zero BS in our org and none is tolerated. You'll be working for some of the best high-quality people who are putting the mission first, and we need you. We need more volunteers. Right now, I need people in the Tornado Alley area of the USA. This is where the most disasters happen the most often. So if you are in this area and you want to help, sign up. Soon it will be wildfire season and we'll need volunteers from California to Idaho and in other fire-prone states to help out there. If you live in this area, you can help. Soon it'll be hurricane season. We'll need volunteers in the southern and east coast of the USA. Then next we'll have blizzard and winter storms that'll affect the USA. We'll need volunteers there. If you want to sign up and volunteer for this, go to CAC Team and click on volunteer. Sorry, CACTeam.com and click on volunteer to sign up. It costs fifty dollars per year to be a CAC member. <laughs> hey. We have to give you a full background check. No felons can work for CAC team. We have to know who's working for us. And then there's the ID and the vest, and those are professional items that we get made, and we issue them to you. These are not cheap ones. Plus, we got door magnets for you. If you're poor, then listen to Jack. Get out of debt. Start making more money, and then come and join us. We'll, we will welcome you. CAC pays for all of the food and water for our deployment. But if you can't afford the gas, then we can't use you as a scout anchor vehicle or a feeder vehicle. But we need more than just people to deploy. We need people who can't deploy. How? We need some Facebook experts to help us with our Facebook postings, especially during a disaster and the deployed people are sending back photographs and information. We need certain portions of those to go up onto Facebook in real time to let people know what we're doing. We need we need more than one person for just for Facebook. We need a small team because a disaster can go on for days, 24/7. And we also need people who can sit by the computer and a telephone and work as a dispatcher. If we have multiple teams deployed, we need people to work with the executive director and the regional director on communications and man- management of the teams deployed. 
Plus, there's going to be feeder vehicles coming and going. More supplies are going to have to be purchased. This all has to be done by a dispatcher coordinator. So if you can do that, volunteer. We need you, and we can find a place in CAC team where you can, can contribute. We need people of all talents. And if you can't volunteer for CAC team, you can greatly assist us with a financial dona- donation. We've had more donations come in since November 20th, including one incredible anonymous donation from a person who donated $1,000 to us. Thank you so very much. We now have about $3,000 for buying food and water. No one on CAC team receives any money or salary. None. We all volunteer. So all of your money goes into buying food and water, and if we have enough, we are going to also help pay you to outfit your vehicle for CAC team deployment to a disaster area. So if you want to donate your dollars to a very well-organized nonprofit group who will put your money directly into food and water that will go into the bellies of hungry and thirsty people, then consider us. You can volunteer or donate to us directly on our website www.cacteam.com. That's Charlie Alpha Charlie T as in Team E A M dot com. Thanks, Jack, for letting us come on with this update. This is normally where I say something about a one, two, three, four website, but I'll tell you a little secret. You get great training when you join CAC team. And you get any training that I, Steve Harris, sell, you get it for free. So there's all types of benefits. Please consider joining us or donating. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll bring you our next update after our next deployment. Hello, Jack. This is Brent from the Thumb of Michigan. I have a question about goji berries. Well, I've been putting an orchard in on my property for quite for a little while now, two years. And pop-off trees, sea berries, because they're a nitrogen fixer. And next spring, since I've already spent my budget for this year and what I can plant, um, I was thinking about goji berries, that you talk about on the show. My question is, I'm just scanning the Internet a little bit here, and I see a lot of people apparently get sick from them because of the, it being part of the nightshade family. Um, you know, I'm kind of doing this for an investment, but for my future – but I also would like to eat them as well, and I don't want to go, you know, buy 20 of these bushes that are $30 a pop, but they're quite a ways along. They're like two foot tall. Um, without asking you a few more questions before I go buying a bunch. So if you give me a little info on the goji berry, and you think a lot of people have reaction with it, or you think it still is a good investment for the future, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Enjoy the show. Bye. Well, here's the, here's the answer to this. Um, this falls under the description of there's people that are looking for something to write about every day and like to make a big deal out of things that, well, aren't really a big deal. The number one actual complaint that I've heard from people that have consumed too much goji is that they end up crapping their brains out, and you will, and it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a nightshade. It's that it's a generally consumed when, the, when people do that is a concentrated uh, dried fruit, 
uh, much the way that if you eat a lot of prunes, you'll crap your brains out, and the prune is not a nightshade. A nightshade, ooh, that's dangerous. What is in the nightshade family? Potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, and tobacco. Uh, I'm not for eating tobacco. I'm not even really for using tobacco for much of anything at all other than a good cigar about once a month. Um, but I'm certainly not going to give up my chili peppers. I'm really not. Um, I'm still going to use tomatoes. Uh, I won't be eating any deadly nightshades, but uh, yeah. In fact, the truth is that it's not really sort of kind of really a nightshade. They're in the Solacre family, which includes nightshades. So it's not even... It depends on who you ask as a taxonomist whether or not goji is a true nightshade or not, but it does have some of the same characteristics of nightshade and therefore has some of the uh, things that some people seek to avoid. However, if you're going to eat chili peppers and tomatoes, you don't really worry about this. And how much goji are you going to eat? Goji isn't something we make jams and jellies out of. Goji isn't something we sit down to a bowl full of. Goji, much like chili peppers, for totally different reasons, is something we use in moderation. The other thing is, if you compare goji to some of the other nightshades, the leaves are not toxic. So we have other nightshades where you really shouldn't eat the leaves, but you can eat goji leaf, and they make a really good, high-quality tea. This is a plant that's been used as a medicinal for 6,000-plus years in traditional Chinese medicine. This is a plant being used by thousands and millions of people across the planet with no ill effects. I have some concerns about goji health-wise, though, and here's the main one. The main one is that the majority of goji being purchased in this country today are coming from China, where they have very lapse rules and regulations on the use of pesticides and things like that. However, the pesticide use is probably not as bad as some Internet scare tactic sites might lead you to believe because the goji is largely unaffected by most insect pests. And no farmer anywhere, no matter how much they're allowed to, does a lot of spraying of an insecticide or pesticide if it's not necessary. They're also highly adaptable. So I would think that you know, you're know you not going to get organic quality unless you're paying for it when it comes to goji. And there could be some residual insecticides and what have you. But unless you're eating 100% organic and locally produced and known and naturally produced already, there's probably no more there than there is in a green pepper you're going to pick up at Kroger's or Albertsons. So I just wouldn't worry about this at all, other than if you're using large quantities of imported gojis, there may be some residual herbicides, pesticides, chemicals that you'd rather not have, which is more of the case for growing your own. They do well here. They're widely adaptable. They can go from zone 5 to 9. 5 sometimes gets a little bit marginal with some cultivars, so I would do a little bit of solar trapping and deep mulching in your first couple of years until you establish your plants there in Michigan because Michigan is mostly zones 5 and 6. If you actually happen to be in a part of Michigan, there are some parts that are zone 4, you are going to have to grow them in pots and bring them indoors during the harshest part of the winter or do some really good solar trapping south-facing rocks, with the plants protected, solar heat gain, lots of mulch, all of that good stuff. But most of Michigan, you should have no trouble growing them. And I would grow them, and I would go on with your life, and I would use them for all the things that gojis are meant to be used for. And the one concern being these chemicals would not apply because of all the things I'm growing here, the one that needs the least of my attention to do well seems to be goji. 
and I'm looking forward to a much better harvest. Last year I got a few berries here and a few berries there. I'm looking for a much better harvest this year, and hopefully enough to make it worth firing up the Excalibur and preserving some. And I primarily use my goji berries in tea. And it's not a goji tea. It's a tea with gojis. So I take dried gojis, and I get a steaming cup of, of tea, maybe a mint and lemon balm tea, put four or five goji berries in there. And, let them, and they add a great flavor, and they have a lot of things going for them from antioxidants and things like that, so they're an awesome product. And then at the end, you just eat the plump, now rehydrated goji berries as part of your tea, a little dessert at the end of it. That's my opinion. Have gojis been overhyped? And it's oversold on the internet as being a miracle food that will cure everything from, you know, cancer to leukemia and back. Yeah, sure. But you know what? And yes, I know leukemia is a type of cancer. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, have they, that, has that been oversold? Yes. Will they cure all your ailments and ails? No. They are a very good tonifying, high-quality antioxidant, lots of lycopene, lots of other really great stuff. They do have some of the negative components of a nightshade, but so does your chili pepper, unless you're going to stop eating jalapenos wrapped in bacon and cheese. And what what world do we live in when you're not eating those? I, I, I certainly wouldn't worry about this. You're going to eat far less of this than other nightshades in most diets and get far less of a, of a nightshade effect if it even bothers you. Uh, nightshade sensitivity to these plants that have some of these components to them um, is also highly personal. So it's important with your own diet always to fine-tune what works for you. But this concept that like people are going to start dropping over or getting really sick from eating goji berries is stupid. Don't listen to it. And whoever's propagating that information, they go into one of two camps. They're a freaking moron that can't be trusted, or they're a slickster that can't be trusted. So there'd be a third one, and that is they're hypochondriac. There's people that get into the paleo, primal, or health lifestyle one way or another, and they start figuring out what you can't eat, and by the time they're done, you can't eat nothing. Let me play a little uh, excerpt from a song here from the 1980s real quick, and we'll go on to another question after that.
beer, whiskey, women, and sweet red wine. All right, I'm sorry. I had to play the whole song. That was too much fun. That took me back to 1980 when I was a little kid bouncing around in my dad's Chevelle with him. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a point to that, right? If we didn't eat everything that somebody said we shouldn't eat, then we wouldn't eat at all. We'd be dead. Because uh, I'm sure somebody would have a problem with beer and whiskey and wine and women, I guess, as well. So, um, you know... It, I've always remembered that song as I've become more and more conscious about what I eat and try to structure a good, healthy, nutritious diet to also not go overboard. So that's why I played that for a little humor for you on your Friday afternoon. Um, next up, let's take a question for Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer. Michael, I have a feeling there's a lot of folks out there that would like better pollination and, and, and do think something with bees, but they're worried about being stung or they don't want honey and they just want more pollinators on their property. And one of the things they could look at is mason bees. Could you talk about setting up habitat uh, for mason bees? Um, and as far as mason bees go with stinging, I guess they can sting. I've never seen one sting. I think you'd have to grab it and smash it to make it do it. Uh, I've had them flying all around me, all over me, landing on me. I've pushed them off of flowers when they're in my way, and they just don't seem aggressive at all. So they seem like a perfect fit for some folks. So what do you have to say about mason bees, sir? Hey, this is Michael Jordan talking to you on mason bees, or what some call orchard bees. Mason bees are a great bee to get into if you're looking for pollination of your plants. They are named from their habitat of making compartments of mud as their nest, which are made from hollow reeds or holes in wood made from boring insects or woodpeckers. You can find mud tubes on the framework of your barn or on the sunny side of your house sometimes. Mason bees are far more effective pollinators because they are not out for nectar flow like the honeybee is, but mostly for pollen collection. They're not aggressive, but females can sting, and it feels more like a mosquito bite rather than a honeybee sting, and it very rarely happens. I love the blue mason bee. That is what I have at my home now. I manage only two nesting boxes now. I do not uh, think I'll do any more because I spend most of my time with honeybees. But on that note, mason bees have very little management needed other than an outside source of making nesting boxes in mud. Building a good home for mason bees is very easy. Mason bees like nesting tubes that are 5 sixteenths of an inch wide and about 5 to 6 inches deep, which they can lay anywhere from 3 to 5 larvae in. You can get bamboo reeds this size or make paper tubes. I like the paper tubes the best because you can pull them out and replace them for cleaning and you can use a pencil and a newspaper to make hundreds of tubes. You can drill a 5 sixteenths inch hole into a 6 by 6 piece of wood that's a foot long, doing this about every inch down the board and uh, mounting it in direct sun on your home. If you choose to build your own house, please do not use treated wood. Placing paper tubes that you make in coffee cans and packing them full and hanging about five to six feet off the ground is great and inexpensive. You can even take the paper tubes, wrap string around the tubes, and mount it on a tree or on your front porch. Very cheap and very nice. Remember, mud is a must. Since female mason bees need mud for their eggs, it's important to have an open ground without grass, bark covering, uh, really nearby. Uh, your family can also make mud pies, 
with soil that's really moist but not too soupy. Uh, have your little kids go out there. They might be just the right chef for mud pie project for your mason bees. Uh, remember, mason bees are very weak when they first emerge, so do not place this mud pie or container directly underneath the nest. For when they emerge, they might fall into it and die. But by using like a small swimming pool, you can put mud on one side and water on the other to keep the dirt moist and giving water for those bees too, almost like a natural habitat near a stream, creek, or lake. Remember, mason bees too have predators just like honeybees. Mason bees need to have good care. Uh, there's parasites that can harm them. Uh, one of the major one is woodpeckers that pick out the sealed tubes for food. And the small uh, chastlid wasp pierces the mason bee tube, laying its egg in there, using the mason larva as a food source for the new wasp. Hey, if you want more information on mason bees, you can get all about mason bees DVD from Dr. Margaret Dogtrum. Or you can visit davesbees.com. He uh, mostly does just only mason bees. And I've also uh, have sent a link to Jack of a great flyer on mason bees from the city of Bloomington, Indiana. That the mayor there, Mark, uh, is big on uh, natural pollination for his state and for his town there in Bloomington and has made this flyer available for people to make natural pollinators. Hey, this has been the Bee Whisper. Now let's go out and get stung. Hi, Jack. This is Josh from Northern Ohio. I have a question about raising amaranth as a substitute seed for ducks. My idea is to chop and drop and also to let the seed pods at the end of the year mature so that I can store some of the seed for next year and also for feed across the wintertime. I have 10 ducks, and I am limited in the space that I would be putting this in. I'm probably going to do about... 10 feet by 20 feet this year to see how this goes and maybe expand it next year to a different part of my property. Any insight as to which variety of uh, amaranth I should use would be appreciated. And I also live in zone 6A, if that is helpful at all. I live just south of Lake Erie, probably about by 20 minutes. So thank you for all you do, and I've been with you since about the single digits of the um, podcast. Keep up the great work. Um, this has been my experience with uh, grain amaranth and ducks. They might eat some of it, but they're not hugely a fan of it. Um, it's a very small seed. And ducks are a highly visual predator uh, and uh, a highly uh, visual grazer. And I, I don't know what it is, but they don't seem to be overjoyed with amaranth. I think if you were throwing a couple handfuls uh, into their feed on a daily basis, they'd probably end up eating it, and I think it'd be fine. I don't think amaranth should make up the majority of feed for any poultry. Uh, there are certain anti-nutrition factors in amaranth. While amaranth is a great grain for human beings, um, it, those things tend to have a little bit more of an effect on poultry, keeping in mind the song we just heard and not getting all freaked out about it. Uh, it is definitely not a staple grain to be feeding birds that you're growing for meat in a short period of time. So if you were doing broiler chickens, I would not recommend this. If you were doing an 11 to 12 week grow out of, um, 
jumbo peckin' ducks. I would certainly not. But again, I don't think they're going to be that fond of it anyway. Um, there's a couple different things you could do. One, you could look at maybe doing something else as a supplemental grain, and what might work for, for you really well is milo or sorghum. It has nowhere near the, near the protein or nutritional uh, value of amaranth, but it's a little bit bulkier, and the ducks do love that, and it could be simply have all the, uh, the tops cut off of it and let it dry, and then you could just throw them a couple of those uh, to eat straight off of the stock without any kind of shucking or anything. And my ducks and geese both go crazy for sorghum. I do not make it a bulk of their diet, but I do make it an augmented feed with the size of space that you're going to grow it in anyway. You're not going to make it the bulk of their food, so it's not a problem. Um, sorghum, amaranth, and several other grains, if fed to poultry, if they're going to be fed to poultry much, uh, really need to be heat treated uh, for a variety of reasons I won't get into. But the volumes you're talking about, it's not an issue. I think that the, the most advantageous thing you can do with amaranth for your ducks is grow the largest uh, vegetative forms of amaranth. You can get big, lots of leaves, cut all your leaves off of it, coppice it down, let it spring back and, and do it again, dry your leaves out, and make big bags of crumbled up leaf. And then in your as, as your supplemental feed, and I don't think you would do this just in winter, this would make a lot of sense to do year-round. Um, and you can certainly save a lot of it, mix that leaf into the feed. Why? Amaranth leaf is anywhere from 22% to 36%, in some instances 38% protein, especially when dried. Are you? Did you get that number? It's a huge protein source. And all of the things that you have to worry about with grain amaranth for poultry, you don't have to worry about with leaf amaranth. So you get a higher yield, you get an easier yield to manage, you get something that's far more palatable. And I am actually looking at growing lots of amaranth this year myself and doing this for my ducks and also growing tons of comfrey and mixing in maybe a, a just a, a teaspoon or two of dried comfrey leaf into each feeder and maybe a good handful of dried amaranth into each feeder as a nutrition boost, as a protein boost, uh, as a mineral boost. And, and, you know, I'm continuing to take my ducks to higher levels of quality on the output of their eggs. And that's one of the things I'm looking at doing. Another thing that, that I will tell you that ducks love is black oil sunflower. I know you don't have a lot of ground. You can only grow so much, but you can get the seed, you know, buy a big giant bag for them anyway. And then just plant some of that seed that comes in the in the bird feed bag, and and I sprout that, and that gives you a higher amount of feed, and I see that as a totally that's not a high protein thing. That is a any sprout is a superfood, and I sprout those in buckets with holes in them, like a big jar, like you do sprouts on your on your sink top, really really easy, and even with a relatively short growing season, uh, black oil sunflower is pretty quick maturing. And if you plant, it's a little bit late this year to maybe try to squeeze out two or even three crops, but if you plant it as early in the season as you can, and as soon as your plants are, 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 are like almost ready to put on flowers, like as soon as you see the blossoms, go underneath them and take out enough leaves so that you have about a foot of empty space at the bottom. And right next to every sunflower that's there, pop another seed in. Or just scatter them with, with the, you know, if you have a larger area. And as soon as that flower goes to where it's, it's produced full size seeds, cut the top off and hang it to dry. Cut the stalk off at the base. By then, your second crop's up a foot and a half tall. And you open it up and it takes off. 
And as soon as it happens again, you do it again. You get three down here, you get four or five crops out of the same space of sunflower. I wouldn't want to use the same space to do that every year, and I wouldn't go that intense, but it can be done. Uh, and I would, you know, advise planting other things in there as well. But that's a great, you know, a great seed source or sprouting source for your ducks as well. But if I want to do amaranth, I would be looking at dried leaf mixed in as part of their ration uh, for that huge protein boost there for you. Uh, and there's a lot of other things that ducks really love. And, and, you know, don't overlook the grazing potential with them and what have you. And you're just going to have to feed them more in the... Uh, in the winter, no matter what you grow in that small space, you're only augmenting it. So I'd go for high-quality nutritional boosting. Uh, amaranth and, and, and comfrey would be great ones. And be easy when you start adding something to your animal's feed that they're not accustomed to. Use small amounts and, and watch for any signs of them just, it, just, like not wanting it. That's usually when you know you've gone too far. When they start telling you, I don't want to eat this anymore, or they start digging through it to try to avoid it, That's usually when you've gone too far, unless you have something that's like highly toxic and, and mimics other things that could be dangerous. Amaranth ain't going to do that. Comfrey ain't going to do that for your ducks. Not large amounts, though. Again, maybe a handful of dried amaranth leaf and a, a, a teaspoon to a tablespoon, depending on how big your feeder is, mixed into the feed. Uh, that's a real big boost for them. Let's take another expert panel question. This one for John Pugliano. This is a question from a listener named Joe. Is a question about paying off his... No, I'm sorry, that's the wrong question there. Question is actually from Arturo. I had the wrong uh, week stuff up. Uh, he has a question for John Pugliano regarding the Fed and mortgage interest rates. For months now, he's been flooded with emails and letters from his mortgage letter saying, now is the time to refinance to a fixed rate because the Fed is going to begin raising interest rates any day now. And I would like to know if this is true or just hype. Does refinancing a variable rate to a fixed rate makes fixed rate mortgage make sense right now? Um, and there you go. Um, we'll just hear from John on his response to this one and if he wanted to use any of the additional details. Well, there are a couple questions here to unpack. Let's start with the first question about being flooded with emails and letters from your mortgage lender telling you that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates at any day now. And this is a good time to refinance. Well, generally, when you're getting flooded with marketing information, it's usually just hype. And I'd also say generally, whenever your bank or some type of lender or someone in that position is telling you it's in your best interest to do something, oftentimes it's more in their best interest than your best interest. Now, those are general answers. It's good to know that people are always trying to sell you something and you should always be cautious before you open up your wallet and take that money out and hand it over to somebody else. You should always be asking yourself, why are they working so hard to get my money? Now, the next question the listener asks is, you know, is this just hype or is the Fed actually going to be raising interest rates? Well, that's a question that's been debated for, you know, at least three or four years. A lot of smart economists, a lot of smart people on Wall Street have gotten that answer wrong. With the improvements in the economy and the lower unemployment rates, we have to believe that at some point the Federal Reserve is going to move off of these historic lows and eventually raise their federal funds rate. And even more importantly than that, you have to also assume that at some point the economy is going to be strong enough where lenders demand more of a return on debt instruments. And we've already seen that take place over the last four weeks or so. Earlier in the year, 10-year Treasury rates had dipped back down to something like 1.65%. They've come up significantly since then. Currently, they're at about 2.25%. So we can see rates fluctuate without the Federal Reserve specifically changing their policy. Now, there is a caveat to all this, and this is why I say that a lot of smart people have gotten this wrong for a lot of years. 
And I have absolutely no idea which way it's going to go. But I will say this. Even though the Federal Reserve has stopped their quantitative easing, the third round of quantitative easing, usually known as QE3, they stopped that back around October of 2014. They still maintain $4.5 trillion on their balance sheet, and they're not retiring that debt. Anytime that debt matures, they are, they continue to roll it over, which means in effect they're, they're buying more government debt and they're probably continuing to buy private mortgages. We just don't know, but we know they're not letting that debt mature. They are rolling it over. Well, $4.5 trillion is a significant war chest for them to be playing with. And so that allows them to still manipulate interest rates, even though they're not directly involved in quantitative easing. The other thing to remember is, is that even though our Fed has stopped quantitative easing, the European Central Bank back in January ramped theirs up. And then we've also seen Japan and China and other countries continuing to embark on their own quantitative easing. And you have to remember one thing about money, it's fungible. It can easily move between countries and between borders. So if the European Central Bank is flooding Europe with cheap money and Japan's flooding Japan with cheap money and China's flooding their country with cheap money, that cheap money can still end up back in the United States. And that's exactly what's happening. Even though we've stopped our quantitative easing, the quantitative easing of the other world central banks continue to come into the United States and continue to suppress our interest rates below what they would normally be. I'm giving you all this background information because it's an important way that I have to answer the listener's question. You see, if interest rates weren't being manipulated right now and they were allowed to float at a market rate, we would expect the 10-year Treasury to be above 4%. And I'm not using a historical number to come up with that, but I am using a realistic historical calculation. Throughout modern history, the 10-year interest rate generally tracks nominal GDP growth. And we can argue about that all day, but more or less, we know that inflation is somewhere below 2%, and we know that real GDP growth is probably somewhere above 2%. That gives us a nominal GDP growth rate of 4%, and historically, that's where the 10-year Treasury should be set. But as I just noted, the 10-year Treasury right now is only at 2.25%, and earlier in the year and most of last year, it was significantly below 2%. So you can see that the market rate for the 10-year Treasury is being manipulated, and it's probably half of what it should be. Now, why is that important to the listener's question? Well, as I said, I have no idea when interest rates are going to rise. But we know that price controls and government manipulations and things like that can only last so long, and eventually the free market wins out. We've had artificially low interest rates for at least eight years. I don't know how much longer they can keep it up. We know the Bank of Japan has depressed Japan's interest rates for about a quarter of a century. So governments can pull it off for a long time. But knowing what I know about the free market, eventually at some point, interest rates have to go back up to reach a market equilibrium. Okay, now why that's important to the listener's question. Well, if you have a variable rate mortgage right now, and many people do have them somewhere in the 2% range, which is an incredibly good deal, and this is why the listener wouldn't want to give that rate up, and why they would be suspicious of the bank wanting them to lock in at a higher rate. The reason that I personally would lock in my mortgage rate has to do with risk management. If you can lock in a 15-year mortgage at, say, 3%, and I know many of those type mortgages are being offered, Well, that's a really deep discounted mortgage rate when you look at it from a historical perspective. So I personally, from a risk management standpoint, would rather give up a little bit of that variable rate and lock into a you know a 3% or a 3.25%, some kind of rate like that over 15 years, because in terms of historical money, and when we compare that to where interest rates really should be if they're not being manipulated, I think that that is a very real good rate to be paying right now. 
but it all comes down to your risk tolerance. If you're currently on a variable rate mortgage, good for you. You've saved a lot of money over these last four or five years, but you are rolling the dice. And if rates ever go up, they could eventually get to the point where your mortgage is no longer affordable, in which case you would lose your house. You also run the risk of possibly losing your job or being disabled or something like that, where it would eventually disqualify you from trying to lock into a better rate when you do try and refinance. So that's a risk you take as well. When it comes to keeping a roof over my family's head and my family's general welfare, I'm just not a risk taker. If I could lock in a 15-year mortgage right around 3%, I'd jump on that opportunity. But that's just my personal opinion and my risk tolerance. Thank you for the question. If you'd like to hear more about my market commentary and my opinions on building wealth, check out the Wealthsteading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Hi, Jack. This is Chris in North Texas. Um, I have a question about suckering apple trees roots. Um, I planted some red, uh, a red delicious and a golden delicious and a Fuji, and uh, all three of them uh, didn't make the summer last year, but one of them appears to be suckering from the roots, and I'm wondering if I can actually graft uh, onto that, and, and the best time to do that would be and, and the procedure for that. So appreciate your comments. Thanks. Yeah, you can, and there's there's two schools of thought here. Is one you could you could harvest scion wood when it's dormant, uh, which would be the fall, and then graft sometime in either early spring or if you want to do it through winter, you want to do it like before the hard winter hints, when, right when it goes dormant. And most people would tell you if you're going to be grafting outdoors to graft in early spring, not not uh, in, in full on winter, uh, but before your trees go back into buds, so while they're still dormant. And a whip and tongue will work great for that. And it's it's the same type of graft you would you would probably want to do if you were grafting root stalks that you had in pots or in tree beds or whatever you were going to then plant out. And that's really covered very well in Nick Ferguson's uh, plant propagation course. I keep getting asked, you know questions. When is it going to be available again? The plant propagation course is not a limited time thing. You can go to hermanethos.com and get Nick's propagation course anytime you want and learn how to do all this stuff. Now, you don't have to wait, though, and summer is actually not a bad time for grafting, but you really want to use a, a different technique than a whip and tongue. Uh, budding and tea grafting are the two best techniques you can use. And here's the thing. They're such small grafts. As long as you have a decent uh, piece of material to work with, there's almost no reason not to try this. Because if it fails, you, you're out the few minutes it took you to try the graft, and if it succeeds, you've got a new plant. Um, I've got some trees that I that I, I tried some grafting with that didn't work. I'm going to go ahead and try this this summer, uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, and, and select some material to do some budding and, and, and tea grafting. Uh, I have a great article that tells you how to do it on IncredibleEdible.com, uh, and I'm going to put that up for you. And I also have a video for you guys on YouTube that I found a guy he does use the word um a lot, but he does a very good job of showing how to do bud grafting. Uh, in his case, he's doing it with a stone fruit, but it doesn't really matter. It's the same technique. So you can either graft in summer or graft in the, the winter. Um, but I would really recommend personally, yes, I know I said um there right after I picked on the guy for it, uh, but I would really personally recommend go ahead and try it because right now is summer, and as long as you can get yourself some material to graft on from anything else, 
And once you look at the article, you'll know what you're looking for as far as you know your your, your grafting material, your sun material. And as long as you can find anybody with an apple tree that you would want to to get material from, you can take it from that. And honestly, most box stores and nurseries, if you went in and said, "Can I take a little piece of this cutting off of this tree?" would probably tell you, "Go ahead." They don't really care. Or you have yet another option. If you can still find a good quality tree for sale that you would like to have, um, you could always go and get that tree, plant it somewhere else on your property, and take a piece of it for your own propagation. But the odds that you can't find an apple somewhere around that you can get a, a, a bud uh, from to, to graft with, pretty low. So yes, you can. Uh, as to the mechanics, again, I'm going to say best thing you can do, Take Nick's propagation course. He goes through all of this stuff. But if you just want to try it on your own, there's no reason not to. I'll give you two resources in today's show notes. Uh, let's take another uh, one here for our expert council. I actually have a brand new one for you today, a new council member you've never heard from before. Her name is Erica Strauss. And just to get you familiar with the type of questions she can ask, uh, answer for you, instead of asking her a question, I really just wanted to give her a chance to introduce herself, tell you a little bit about her, herself and what she does, and other type of things that she can help you with. So, Erica, could you say hello to the TSP audience as our newest member of the Expert Council? Hello, TSP community. My name is Erica Strauss, and I am the newest member of your survival podcast, Expert Council. I am here to take all your questions about all things related to urban homesteading and productive homekeeping. So if you have questions on food preservation, canning, pressure canning, fermentation, dairying, dehydration, curing of meats or seafoods, ask away. If you think you need 80 spray bottles of assorted stinky commercial cleaners to help you keep your house clean, I want to show you that there is a better way to do it. And if you want to truly take care of yourself, starting with your very own body, I can tell you how to make your own soap and lotions and scrubs and more. Now, you might be asking, who is this gal and why is she talking about body scrubs? This is the Survival Podcast. Well, first off, I'm a longtime TSP listener and an MSB member. I am proud to love this community and what Jack is doing to help more people take greater control over their own life and their own destiny. Some of the guys who are on the Expert Council have been heroes of mine for a long time. And so to be able to be in the same pool of resources for you, the TSP community, is just amazing. Just a little bit of background about me. I'm a professionally trained chef, and when my first child was born um, over 11 years ago, I knew I wanted to grow the absolute best and most delicious organic produce I could for my family and for catering clients that I was serving. So I started a small garden. It was just a couple of raised beds in the backyard. And then very quickly, that turned into kind of a full-blown urban homesteading obsession. And so over the last uh, 11 or dozen years, my husband and I have been converting our boring, traditional, resource-intensive, typical suburban lawn into a micro-homestead. And right now, we have a third of an acre. Uh, it, we live in a totally normal suburban neighborhood just uh, outside Seattle. And we produce, on our one-third of an acre, pretty much all of our fresh-eating produce for nine months out of the year. We keep chickens and ducks, and we get enough eggs that we actually sell and barter extras with friends and coworkers. 
We've got all kinds of fruit production happening. I think we, at this point, have over 50 producing fruit trees and about as many fruiting bushes. I use many of the same permaculture-type techniques that Jack talks about to bring fertility and bounty and to reduce waste in my small space, but I just scale them way down. So, for example, we have a pair of breeding Ancona ducks, and... um They've made nine rapidly grown adorable little ducklings, and that's been our entire spring is watching our ducklings grow. Um, But as anyone who has watched the Duck Chronicles knows, ducks love water, and they make it really dirty in a hurry. So we built a small pond for our ducks, and in order to keep that water somewhat clean, we run it through a big filter that we built up out of a 55-gallon rain barrel. And then the overflow from the duck pond and any back flushing that we do to clean out the filter periodically goes into a series of micro swales, which are just, I mean, really, they're just little ditches, sort of carefully dug little ditches. And those ditches irrigate our backyard orchard trees with this nutrient-rich duck poop water. So... Everything is feeding everything else. Another example is I use chickens to process most of our kitchen scraps into the compost, which in turn feeds the annual vegetable beds, which in turn feed us. So everything is a big cycle, and that's how it has to be. And when your systems are really tight, it's pretty easy to see the interaction between the various components and to really kind of get in hands-on and tinker and make the components work in the optimum possible way. So there are actually some advantages to working on a smaller scale. We've tapped into our local waste stream, and we get free wood chips. We get free spent brewer's grain from a local pub. We get free shredded paper. All of the junk mail and stuff that comes in gets shredded, and that goes to line um, the chickens' nesting boxes, and it goes uh, into the worm bin to be converted into vermicompost. So one of the other things about being in a more urban area is that there's this huge waste stream that you can tap into. There's so much out there that's just free in an urban environment that you can turn into uh, a productive ingredient for your own homestead. And I think that is actually one of the biggest money-saving tips if you've got an urban or a suburban homestead is don't just think about what's on your property. Think outside of that to what's on your community. What kind of waste do other people think of as garbage that you can turn into gold for your own backyard? So I encourage you to think creative, tap into the resources that are around you, and above all, start to get productive both in and outside your home. Whatever I can do, I'm here to help. Just email Jack your question for me. Again, my name is Erica. And if you guys want to learn more about me or about what I do, the best thing is go visit my website, which is called Northwest Edible Life. You'll find it at www.nwedible.com. I've got over four years worth of articles detailing how we've built our own urban homestead and tips and techniques for how to keep a more productive home. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash nwedible. NW Edible, pretty much all over the web. If you just look for NW Edible, I'll come up. I'm really looking forward to your questions. Please send them in. I can't wait to answer them. And I'm so happy to be here on the Expert Council. Keep building that better life, and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, Jack. I made some comfrey oil following your recommendations earlier. And while it doesn't exactly stink, it's not something that I would call pleasant smelling. I was wondering what you would recommend adding to it to improve the smell. I was thinking maybe some lavender oil, but I would like to hear your thoughts on the matter. Thanks. Bye. 
Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton at Permies.com with a report on what's been happening at Wheaton Laboratories since the last time you were here, which was a while ago when you came to that event in Helena. Um, I now have 300 acres up at the laboratory, and we still have the same 20 acres down at base camp. Uh, bordering acreage, acreage at the laboratory is currently for sale, and so that we've had some Permies come through to look at it. Uh, no sealed deals yet, so... Not, you know, kind of hoping that it'll be uh, owned by a permie. Much better to have a permie next door than a sprayer. Uh, one of the new things we're doing this year is called Ant Village. Uh, we've set aside 12 uh, chunks of land, each uh, an acre apiece, and uh, we're renting them for $800 from now through the end of 2016. So that's about 20 months. Um, the first ant is here, a few more are on the way, uh, and... Uh, there are also three deep root spots available, and that's more of a, rather than renting it for a limited time, it's renting it for an unlimited time. Um, and we're doing a thing called the Ant Village Challenge. This is where uh, at the uh, near the end of next year, uh, on September 10th of 2016, we're going to select one of the uh, ant parcels and convert it to a deep roots package and that's going to be based upon how resilient it is etc uh, all the details are on the forums at permies.com and the wheaton laboratories forum uh got a new tractor um i used to own a john deere about 10 years ago uh and i liked it because the deal was is that when you buy a brand new john deere tractor then that particular john deere deere dealer dealership would come out for the first three years if you had any problems with your tractor and before that, I had two old tractors that were 50 years old, and I had all sorts of problems with them. I was just tired of spending all my time repairing tractors, so I broke down and bought a brand new tractor. Here, I've been struggling with um, some of our larger equipment and uh, finally bought a new tractor. The local John Deere dealership doesn't have the same kind of deal the other John Deere dealership did, uh, but the local Kubota dealer did. And so I have a new 55-horsepower Kubota tractor with a loader and a bunch of attachments and things like that. Um, we're kind of shifting the way we do a lot of the things here at Wheaton Laboratories, and currently we have a bunch of uh, paid projects, projects for which we will pay to get them done. Um, for example, a berm shed. Uh, it's kind of like an ailer structure, but in a shed. We're hoping that it'll be very, very fast to build. Um, but we've put a $10,000 bounty on that. Uh, freezer Wafati. It's kind of like the house Wafati design, but it's a little deeper. Um, it's going to have no windows whatsoever, and we believe that we'll be able to keep it at freezing temperatures on the inside through the summer. Uh, more details about that on the forums. Um, we're going to do an upgrade to Wafati 0.7, uh, so there's a bounty on that. Um, several uh, rocket mass heater experiments. So some people um, can get paid to conduct rocket mass heater experiments. Uh, experimenting is what we're all about here. Uh, got a bounty on uh, Airwell, on creating an Airwell. You talked about Airwells in your show uh, about two or three years ago, I think. Uh, and we've also got something called a humus well. This is something that is uh, something that Sepp Holzer does where you uh, kind of make a trench of sorts, um, and then you plant a lot of taprooted trees around it, and then water will eventually, years later, collect in it, and you have a water source on your property. Uh, it's kind of like what you talk about with a forest being a lake, only you're going to tap that. You're going to put stuff in, in there to tap that. Uh, so we're going to conduct that experiment here. Oh, we've got a free PDC that we're doing here. 
Uh, a PRI certified instructor, Howard Story, will be here to teach a two-week official PDC from June 21st to July 4th. Uh, this is going to be something for uh, the the ants, for the ant village, uh, uh, plus our Deep Roots people, and uh, the gappers that come by to help them. Um, lots of details about that. Uh, there is a way for to get in if you're not one of those people. Um, and it's like, uh, I, I think it's currently something on the order of $400. So for them, it's 400 bucks, but for everybody else, it's free. Um, all four of our electric vehicles are now online. So, Jack, I know when you were here, we had, I believe, two electric vehicles. But for most of the time, and in fact, in the last year, I think we've only had one or two running at any, at any given time. So we've got somebody here now who, has, um, who is an expert in this field and has all four of them running, plus all six of our electric chainsaws are currently online. Um, the uh, including this is an interesting point the Oregon cordless electric uh, which i believe is a saw that you advocate uh is the only of only one of the electric chainsaws that has never gone offline and needed repair uh our electric sawmill is back online so um we're able to get back to uh, making lumber um and uh oh our big project from last year so it's been about a year in the making more than a year in the making uh, our 3,000 watt solar leviathan is now all done and uh, up on the laboratory, ready to generate power. Uh, we have uh, three showers. We have like a, a skittable shelter, this thing that we can drag around with a tractor. Uh, it has three showers in it, and it's parked next to a compost pile. And so um, uh, in about half an hour, we'll find out whether or not the compost pile is hot enough to heat the water this year, or do we need to recharge that that pile? But last year, we were getting scalding hot water out of that compost pile to, to run the showers. But we've now passed all danger of freezing, so those uh, showers are now uh, hooked back up again. Uh, we finished an interesting fence at base camp, and it uses a lot of wood, um, but we have oodles of wood. We have gobs and gobs of force. In fact, we've got all these patches where... Uh, the wood's growing in so thick that it's a fire hazard. And what most people around here do is they cut all that down, put it in a pile, and they burn it in the wintertime. Um, but we're going to take all that wood and we're going to make fence out of it and, uh, you know, apply it to certain kinds of the, uh, certain types of the wafati structures, things like that. But, uh, the, the fence is eight feet tall. It's designed to keep, uh, layer chickens in and keep the deer out. Uh, it takes longer to build than the standard field fence, but, a field fence costs about $140 per 100 feet, and this costs about $2 per 100 feet. Um, an interesting thing along the lines of the fence is that base camp, as you know, you were here, uh, is like a 20-acre rock, whereas up at the laboratory, we have amazingly, incredibly deep soil. Like, we dug a hole 40 feet deep, and we still didn't hit bedrock. But here at base camp, it's one solid rock. And so we couldn't get any fence posts into the ground. Uh, so we resorted to something from when I was a kid uh, called a rock jack. And so um, I wish there was a way to describe this in audio, but you kind of cobble some sticks together in such a way where you can start piling rocks into the structure and it holds the fence post up with the rate of weight of the rocks. 
Uh, we have a super week coming up in June, June 15th to 21st. This is where we invite permies to all come out in mass, uh, to hang out with other permies and, um, you know, work on projects and, um, you know, have campfires and things like that. Uh, and that's just, that's the week immediately before the free PDC that's coming up. Uh, so they'll, and we'll have, um, the instructor Howard Story will be here for a month. So I think he gets here in a few days. He'll be here for a month before the PDC. We'll be doing all kinds of stuff to prepare for the PDC. Uh, another interesting thing that we're starting is called Peanut Village. Um, and this is where we facilitate gappers with families. Uh, uh, in the last few years, we haven't been that accommodating to families. But now, with the changes to our programs, um, we've, we're setting something up where we actually encourage a group of families to come together in one spot so they can uh, help each other with watching kids. Uh, and so, final tidbit for now, uh, we planted a bunch of Sepulcher's grain last fall, and it's looking fantastic. Um, and I uh, did a little experiment in the middle of winter, I think around January, some giant doofus in overalls went and peed on one side of it, and... That side, this spring, did like about eight times better than the other side. Proof that urine is effective. So that's it for now, Jack. Talk to you next week. Thanks. Uh, next, I have another expert counsel question. This one for Gary Collins. Gary uses a very um, individualized approach. People first you know, really scale back and eat some known things and then slowly try other things and figure out the best diet for themselves, which is why I really like Gary's approach. He, he has certain things. He said, do not eat this, but if you really want to, you can eat it in moderation to figure out what works for you. I've actually, you know, with a, with a few exceptions, never heard of say, thou shall never eat this or thy shall not work with me. I, I, I really like his approach. But with that said, there's probably some core meals and foods and things that really work for everybody well that we should make kind of the core that we build off of. And I just wanted some suggestions for Gary when it comes to being primal and paleo. What are some core things that you recommend people include in their diets, Gary? Hey, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And I want to give you some more core meals and food items today. Uh, the first one is one of my favorite go-to meals is grilled shrimp and steamed squash. Uh, very simple meal. I was able to get the ingredients at my local grocery store, which I do not shop at very often. But I was had a feeling I, I wanted this meal, and I wanted to eat it tonight. So I went by there, and sure enough, found some uh, wild-caught shrimp and also some organic squash. So with that, I just simply seasoned my shrimp with some turmeric uh, and basically a little sea salt, and I'm good to go. I'll, uh, I, sometimes I'll cook it in a little coconut oil. Uh, sometimes I just kind of steam them up or I'll throw them on my barbecue grill. Um, the next one is I want to talk about breakfast. Uh, most people look at breakfast as the first meal of the day because of our predefined terms of what breakfast is. But this meal is technically breakfast, but I eat it all the time. And it is scrambled eggs, a couple slices of bacon, couple or a couple links of sausage with some some grilled or some fried tomatoes or maybe even some steamed spinach. I literally will eat this meal for dinner, lunch, in between, whenever. It really doesn't matter. And that's one thing I want you guys to start thinking about, too, is uh, get past these uh, preconceived notions that you have to eat a certain meal at a certain time. I'll have a steak for, for, for my first meal. You know, it, it's there's no rules like that. Uh, it's silliness that you have to eat a certain meal at a certain time. But uh, it's one of my go-tos. It's because it's very simple. Healthy and 
anyone can cook this meal. It is the first meal I learned to cook, actually, when I was probably around eight and had to go fend for myself while my parents were at work. Eight or nine, I know, those were different times. That would be called child abuse these days, but uh, I did just fine. And with that, you know, it may have been a bowl of Captain Crunch back then, but don't, that's not part of the deal. Don't, Captain Crunch is not primal or paleo. But yeah, I think that's an easy go-to meal. Find the ingredients anywhere. Uh, the next one's almond butter. I always have a jar of almond butter with me as far as, you know, either at home. I travel with it. I took a jar with me from San Diego up to Washington when I had to drive the 1,500 miles. And it was a great just to open it up, grab a couple of tablespoons, eat it real quick, and I was fine to go. I didn't have to stop and eat a meal or stop at a place where I was going to get something that was going to be very bad for me, like a gas station. The next is coconut oil. Um, this is a great... Uh, way for you guys to cook, you know, scramble your eggs in it. You can fry your eggs in it. Uh, it's a great source of medium chain triglycerides, uh, that are converted into ketone, ketone bodies, which are a readily available source of energy. Uh, the reason I recommend this too is people struggle getting off cooking oils and because they're very unhealthy. They're uh, usually uh, bad by the time they're even hit the grocery store shelf because they're highly processed. So that's a good cooking oil, and it's all-purpose. You can use it for many things. The last is coconut and almond flour. People struggle with getting off their bread products, pastas, rices, and they go, oh, my God, what am I going to eat? You just took out my made food items that are slowly killing me and making me ill. But uh, this you can use to make bread, uh, you know, pancakes, things like that. Um, I'll make uh, almond flour pancakes. That doesn't mean I don't eat them every day, guys. Again, don't go nuts and eat pancakes three times a day. Um, but it's a great way for you to transition off, off grains if you're going into the primal paleo diet. Well, I hope that helps and uh, makes your life a little easier. I know it does mine and my clients. And one last thing with the coconut almond flour, there are actual products out there. There are breads and pastas now made out of those two flours that you can find in grocery stores or health food stores. So hope that helps. Hey, Jack, this is Neil from Indiana. Just got a couple things to tell you about. One, my uh, middle schooler, just to let you know about the education system, has told me that in eighth grade they're already being told they have to figure out what they are supposed to do for the rest of their life. They want them to pick what college program they want to go into now while they're in middle school um, so that way they can figure out what classes they're going to need through high school. It just absolutely flabbergasts me that uh, the school system is doing this to our children and putting so much stress on them when they're so young. Um, I had to have a very long conversation with my daughter about what she, what choices she does have and that she doesn't need to make a choice like this right now in life because all they're doing is already ingraining into them the fact that they need to uh, be going into debt and she's 13 years old. Yeah, we, we really need to think a lot about how much of the current public education paradigm we really want to subject our children to any further. We really need more and more options for homeschooling and independent schooling and unlearning and, and independent learning and, and student-led education because this is the kind of shit that, I, I mean, I've just about had enough of hearing about it. I, I, 
I think this country should be in an open rebellion at this point from the public education system. Well, Jack, what's wrong with you know getting our children to think about you know their futures early on? Well, this is part of the standardized testing thing. This is about lining people up to be specific workers in specific cogs in a specific machine. Um, and this does tie into standardized testing. And I want to read some excerpts to you from the Blaze. Uh, from a transcript of a, a, um, a analysis by Glenn Beck of Common Core and Bill Gates and some of Bill Gates' answers. I'm not going to play it because it's pretty long, and I just want to give you some of the, the key things. And Glenn Beck and I have like a love-hate relationship, I think. I think maybe I have one for him. He doesn't really care that much about me. But there's things I really like about Glenn Beck, and I, I think he's like an anarchist in the making that's having a hard time admitting it, honestly. Um, and I know some of you would be shocked by that, but like, I mean, the guy just came out and called for an end to federal drug bro prohibition where that was like one of his big problems with libertarians for years and years, that they want to make legalized drugs. And now he's like, yeah, maybe we should. Well, anyway, he does do some good analysis of certain things. And one was this thing with uh, Bill Gates. And I'll just read some of this article to you for you, and I'll, I'll put a link where you can get to the whole thing because it gets, it gets to more of the core of what this caller is talking about. On the radio this morning, Glenn played audio dating all the way back to 2009 National Conference of State Legislators where Common Core funder and supporter Bill Gates spoke candidly about the education system's goals. In the wake of a growing number of alarming stories about Common Core, including Maryland Dad, who was arrested for raising concerns about the system, and various textbooks that have been found to contain questionable information, Gates' remarks take on a frightening new meaning. Kate, Gates' quote here, Fortunately, the state-led Common Core Standards Initiative is developing clear, rigorous, common standards that match the best in the world. Last month, 46 governors and chief state school officers made a public commitment to embrace these common standards. This is encouraging, by identifying common, but under, identifying common standards is not enough. We'll know we've succeeded when the curriculum and tests are aligned to these standards. Secretary Arne Duncan recently announced that $350 million of the stimulus package will be used. Off of Gates' quote now. Think of that. $350 million for stimulus, Pat said. $200 million now from Gates. I don't know how much from Yahoo and Google, but we're really close to $700 million right now. We might be close to a billion dollars. No, it's stunning, Glenn said. And by the way, what Bill Gates is announcing, the White House in the past says that's not true. We're not doing any of that stuff. I mean, everything he's talked about. He spills it all here, Pat interjected. This is a Gates quote again. To create just these kinds of tests, next-generation assessments aligned to the Common Core. When the tests are aligned to Common Core standards, the curriculum will line up as well and will unleash a powerful market force in the service of better teaching. Stop. Wait a minute. It will unleash a powerful market for people looking to learn how to teach the children, Glenn asked. And so when we're, what we're saying here is Bill Gates is developing software that will be used in this. That's why he's investing all of this money, because Microsoft will be able to own and sell all the software for this particular system, so they're really invested in it. Let's get this system through, because look how much money we have, a new powerful market. Now, can you imagine saying that about anything else? Imagine if McDonald's or Coke or Pepsi said, if we can just get this through, our charitable arm of Coca-Cola has put all of this stuff in lunchrooms because it will be good for the kids and healthy, but it will also provide us with a powerful new market. It's amazing. I'm going to skip way down, and I'm going to read a quote also from Bill Gates in all of this. 
And this is where it should all start to become clear what the hell's going on. Gates. For the first time, there will be a large, uniform base of customers eager to buy products that we can help every kid learn and every teacher get better. Back to the Glenn Beck Show. So let's just translate. So this is great because it's going to help kids learn. But listen to me. There are going to be a long line of customers. Uniform customers. I just have to make one product because nobody's going to get out of that product line. He starts in the beginning with talking about how this is a state-run, state, state-run, state-run. No, it's not. Why is the UN involved with this if it's state-run? The governors have been convinced, oh, they came up with this. No, they didn't. Don't you see, governors? You've been played. Now, an honest governor will come out in an honest moment and reflect and say, gosh, I was played. Wait a minute, what? These governors are all talking about ownership of this, and they didn't have anything to do with it, and they want to believe that they're changing everything from the better when they're not. Um, and you can read all of the pieces in between it, but you, you get what's being said here, that basically the standardized testing is being pushed by all these philanthropic giant corporations because they're going to sell into the market. But if you're the one providing the testing, here's where the circle completes. Then you're the one privy to all the economic and demographic data that comes out of the testing. And what you're actually doing is you're manufacturing employees and setting them into a, a, a modern caste system. And when I heard about this interview with, 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 uh, with Bill Gates uh, a long time ago, this is back in 2013, this was on the Glenn Beck Show. When I heard about this, this was my completion of the circle back then. And the caller today, a year and a half later, validates it. My completion was that by doing this um, and having control of the software and all of the data that comes out of it, that corporations are then able to start typecasting our children into the roles that they're going to fill in the future, who they're going to work for, what they're going to do, uh, what path they're going to take to get there. That this standardized testing is really about telling Susie, Susie, You have a future in customer service. You could just go learn to answer a phone, but no, you need a marketing and communications degree. These are the schools that you qualify for. These are the loans and grants you qualify for. And the whole system is being set up to be a funnel that will target Susie by the junior high years and funnel straight into that. And not only does that manufacture the person for that job, it also manufactures student loan debt. It manufactures a certain number of items to be sold to Susie all the way through that process. Johnny, you're going to be an engineer. This is your path. This is your school. And that all of this was designed to create these funnels so that then these corporations not only could make money selling through the funnels and selling debt through the funnels, but actually do their strategic planning based on knowns. We know how many qualified X's are going to be available. Complete, total lifestyle management by someone else. Instead of the lifestyle design and management I teach, which is you design your own, they're designing it for you. You link that into what we learned recently about the, the purpose and the effect of the 40-hour work week, whether 40 hours are needed or not. And you start to see the maniacal system for what it is, a total system of control. And I know somebody think, Jax, put this tinfoil hat on again. Well, then explain it in a different way. Explain somebody investing hundreds of millions of dollars just because he thinks it's the best thing to do for little kids. A guy, by the way, who was completely opposed to the Internet. Do you know that? Bill Gates thought the Internet was crazy. He thought the Internet was socialism. It's communism. Everybody can just access everything any way they want. It's nuts. Yeah, that's why, that's why Internet Explorer is still a crappy browser. 
because they were behind the power curve on that one the whole way through. This is not a guy that is concerned that your kid gets the best education possible. This is a guy that's concerned that the apparatus he is part of has access to your kid based on what they think your kid should do. And now what we're doing is we're completing the circle. We're now manufacturing the mental conditioning of our youth to match the test. Huh? Lenny, you think that's a, a step uh, too far? Or it's just a little crazy? Let me read you Bill Gates's quote from 2009. This is encouraging, but identifying common standards is not enough. We'll know we've succeeded when the curriculum and the tests are aligned to these standards. We must align the curriculum to the standard. Now, what is the biggest detrimental effect, in my opinion, of standardized testing on our youth? It is held up as this horrible thing that if you do not pass it, you will not graduate your grade. When you don't even have to take the test. It's a lie. It's a lie. You know, they could have made it mandatory. They could have put something behind it, but they didn't. They actually let it be the phantom that it is because they knew nobody would give a shit. It was how they sold it. Well, you can opt out. And they really let you opt out. And they, they just threaten you if you do it, but they don't really have any teeth. There's no real force of the state behind it. But there's implied force, and therefore most people just swallow it. And the kids have huge mental problems from this. My son, who was an A student, this kid got, you know, for every five A's on a report card, maybe one B, and usually a B plus, all right, would come home telling me how concerned he was about the test he was going to have to take the test. And I would say, Matthew, you're an A student. Don't worry about it. That, and this is before I understood what it was, right? I, and I was right when I advised him this way. That test is for your teacher to make sure they're not lying about your A's. You're going to pass. You're never going to have to worry about this test. But he worried about it, and he worried about it, and he worried. An A student constantly worried about a test to make sure that a C student really got a C. Because it, and I didn't understand at the time, the way the teachers are drilling this stuff into them. Because the teachers have a big ring in their nose, like you're putting a bull's nose, to be led around by their establishment saying, tell them this, tell them that, tell them this. And they're threatened, and they're, they're coerced. And then they're also convinced they're doing the best thing for the child, and they're programming the child. And now we're going to add another layer of programming. Susie, Johnny, I know you're only in eighth grade. You're still picking your nose half the day. Right? You got your whole life to figure stuff out, but you need to figure out what you're going to do as a profession for the rest of your life. Let's look at your, your academic portfolio, your tech, and let's start staging it now. Let's figure out what classes you're going to take in eighth grade so that you're prepared to go to college five years from now. And some of you are thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's because you're brainwashed. That's because you're brainwashed. That's because you're brainwashed. The basic prerequisites of academic standard to gain entry to the university level are pretty much the same all across the board. But if we're going to market to somebody that they need to get this path, follow this path, and incur what will be, in, in almost no time whatsoever, an average of $100,000 in debt to come out of school with a diploma, a degree, that is a license to go look for a job and beg for one, 
and we're going to sell them on that. We need to begin the programming very early. We need to co-opt the parents into it to make them think they're doing the best thing for their child so they'll co-sign on these loans and get their kids these loans and put them into our system where we can drop the total number of statistics into an Excel spreadsheet and plan the growth of our global empires if we're the, we're the, 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 the status elite. That's what this is. And I know, I know, yeah, Jack's, Jack's crazy. This is encouraging, but identifying the common standards is not enough. We'll know we've succeeded when the curriculum and the tests are aligned to these standards. And here we are in 2015 with a pack of goods that are sold to us as a lie called Common Core being one of the worst things that's ever happened to the educational system in America, a system where children are being taught it takes 109 steps to solve a simple multiplication or division uh, problem that does no good and doesn't make us on par parallel with anybody in the world other than a bunch of pre-programmed morons that divides our children into a caste system and the tests and the standards and the curriculum are being aligned. If you can, get your kids out of public school. And standardized testing, find out if they have to really do it. I don't know of any state where they really do. And if your child is not required to take a standardized test, Opt them out of it and let them know they've been opted out of it. Tell them, you know what, Johnny, Susie, Tommy, whatever, we are going to pay attention to your grades. You're going to do good in school. But this test they keep scaring you with, doesn't matter. Mommy, Daddy, we're taking care of that. That's, that, that's not really a test for you. It's a test for your teacher, and we've decided you don't need to participate in this test. But the teacher said, the teachers, don't say the teacher's lying. Don't do that. Don't cut their knees off that deep, okay? They're just trying to do their job. I'm sorry, the teacher's misinformed, Johnny. I have already taken care of it, and I've explained to your teacher that you're not going to be taking this, and we've already come to an agreement that you're not going to be doing it. So please focus on your year and do the best you can and get the best grades you can, and just don't worry about this. Yeah. And if enough of you did that, we'd get rid of this. You know I said the state can do nothing without the threat of violence at the point of a gun? Here's the interesting thing. If you threaten people with violence at the point of a gun for long enough, they become so convinced of your authority, so convinced of your power, that even when you unload the gun and throw it away, they still do whatever you say. I think this is on some levels a test. How much control do we really have? Can we just say something and make them do it without actually having the, the other boot? Because they could have had a boot for this. It made it easier for them. It's a great test case. How how domesticated are the sheep? Let's drop the fence. See, here's the reality, folks. Here's the reality. The actual mechanisms of enslavement, the fencing around the ranch, designed to keep you in, really rusted to the ground about a hundred years ago. You've been able to leave, to go feral anytime you wanted for a hundred years. Five generations. And we won't go feral anymore. We won't rewild. We've been fully domesticated. We don't have to be. Free yourself. See the rusted fence for what it is. Leave the pasture. Go into the wilderness. Take your family, your lives, your children, and your ambitions with you and succeed. Don't let these people control you anywhere where you don't have to interact with them. Standardized testing, you don't have to do it, so don't. 
With that, hope you have a great weekend. Keep your keep your attention up. Another weekend of severe weather coming. Uh, maybe not as bad as what we've had recently, but it's still out there. Be prepared. Be ready for it. With, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.